Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about some of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve them. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Peter Singer is one of the most influential philosophers of recent times, and one of the biggest influences on 80,000 Hours, so it's pretty obvious that we had to get him on this show at some point. In this interview, we made it to three main topics. Uh, firstly, the strategy he's used to approach advocacy during the course of his life. Uh, second, his views of the effective altruism community and what it's doing right and potentially what it's doing wrong. And finally, uh, where his philosophical positions have shifted over the last 10 uh, to 15 years. A few months ago, uh, Arden Kaler, who'd been studying a philosophy PhD, uh, moved to London to join me and the rest of the 80,000 Hours research team. She joined in for this interview and had a lot of thoughts about the topics that we uh, brought up, but uh, barely got to touch on as we only had Peter for an hour. So at the end of the episode, uh, we keep talking for about another hour about topics like how broad the effective altruism community ought to be, uh, how demanding morality really is, and what is most counterintuitive about utilitarianism. Before all that, though, uh, three quick things. First, this is our second episode using chapters, uh, which allow you to skip between sections. Last time it seemed to work out fine, but if you ever have a technical problem with the show, whether it's to do with chapters or something else, email rob at 80,000hours.org or podcast at 80,000hours.org as quickly as you can, and we'll fix it up as soon as possible. Second, my guest last time was Bonnie Jenkins, uh, who I actually interviewed at Effective Altruism Global London uh, in October, uh, where she was visiting as a speaker. Applications for EA Global San Francisco in 2020 just opened this week. And it will be on a few months earlier this year, uh, actually on the weekend of March 20 through 22nd. The deadline for early bird applications is December 18th, and you can apply to attend at eaglobal.org. If you're serious about changing your career in order to have the uh, biggest social impact possible, and you've never been to an effective altruism global conference before, it's an event that's well worth attending, uh, at least so long as coming to San Francisco for a few days isn't going to be a massive inconvenience. Thirdly, as Peter says uh, in this episode, the 10th anniversary edition of his classic book, The Life You Can Save, has just been released as a free ebook uh, and audiobook, and you can access uh, either of those at thelifeyoucansave.org or through the link in the show notes. All right, here's Peter Singer. Today's guest is the professor of bioethics at Princeton University, Peter Singer. Peter is an Australian moral philosopher known for developing the theory of utilitarianism and is widely viewed as one of the most influential philosophers of modern times. He's particularly famous for his 1975 book, Animal Liberation, in which he argued that animal agriculture was morally unconscionable, and his 1971 essay, Famine, Affluence and Morality, in which he argued that middle-class people in rich countries have a moral obligation to donate to help the global poor or other important causes. His writings have helped inspire the creation of the intellectual movement known as Effective Altruism, and in 2009 he helped found The Life You Can Save, an organization which encourages people to donate to effective charities that reduce extreme poverty in the developing world. And indeed, I don't think there'd be much chance that I personally would be working at 80,000 hours if not for his work over the years. Uh, so thanks for coming on the show, Peter. Ah, I'm very happy to be chatting with you both. Yeah, and today I'm also joined by my colleague Arden Kaler, a researcher at 80,000 hours who's completing her PhD in philosophy at NYU. I'm excited to be here. All right, so we hope to talk a bit about moral philosophy, a bit about your work doing advocacy, and then some more nuts and bolts questions. But first, what are you working on at the moment, and why do you think it's really important? Well, it's, I'm in the midst of the Princeton teaching semester, and it's really hard for me to do much serious research and writing during that period. One thing that I do keep up is my monthly columns for Project Syndicate, and one has just gone up on the Project Syndicate website. And it's actually quite relevant to 80,000 hours and effective altruism because it's about the ethics of randomized controlled trials 
in the anti-poverty sector. This was triggered by the award of Nobel Memorial Prize for e- in Economics to Esther Duflo, Abhijit Banerjee and Michael Kramer. And that, interestingly, sparked some discussion online and even Angus Deaton himself, a Nobel Prize for Economics winner and a, and a Princeton colleague, wrote something critical about randomized trials. So together with Johannes Hausover, who's done these trials, particularly trials of Give Directly in, in Africa, and Arthur Baker, we co-authored a response to that and a defense of the use of randomized trials in, in the anti-poverty sector. Nice. So obviously, uh, people have been requesting for you to come on, on the show, or at least are requesting that we interview you for, I guess, since it started about two and a half years ago. But the reason we decided to do the interview this month is that you're re-releasing the book, Life You Can Save, which originally came out in 2009. And I think there's actually going to be a free audio book, an ebook download at thelifeyoucansave.org. What's changed in the 10th anniversary edition and why re-release it? Okay, so why re-release it is I mean, partly the things have changed and it needed some updating, and I'll get into that in a moment, but also that Charlie Bressler, who's the executive director of The Life You Can Save, had the idea of getting back the rights from the publishers and making it free, putting it online so that more people would read it, basically. The the book had a great influence on him, led him to contact me and to volunteer to sort of take over The Life You Can Save, which was uh, you know, it existed as an organization, but it, it had some volunteers, students doing some work on it, but but it wasn't really very effective because you can't really run something like that without somebody full-time committed to it. And Charlie volunteered to do that and, and has done it. And the book influenced him to do that. And he thought more people should read this book. It'll mean that more people will give to effective charities. So he did manage to get all of the English language rights back. And that's why it will now be available online, as you say, both as an ebook and as a audiobook and the audiobook incidentally has chapters read by a variety of celebrities so we're hoping for a big impact and a lot of people to read it what do you think out of the book people haven't appreciated as much as the other arguments seems like it's been very popular but is there anything in the book that's underappreciated that you'd like to see people thinking about more I want people to think more about giving effectively. That clearly was always the message of the book. But there's always some pushback about people who have pet projects that they have some personal connection with, that they're attached to. I was recently emailing with someone who spent time in Guatemala and got to know a poor family there and started helping them. And they had a child who was ill, and so she got medical help. And then she started thinking, gee, I'm actually putting a lot of money into this, you know, one family and one child. Is that the most effective thing to do? So she's a good example of somebody. I mean, she was aware of the effective giving argument, but she was torn emotionally by the personal connection with the family. And, you know, my view is that obviously what she was doing with the family was was great, but she should be as well as that saying, you know, yes, this is something I want to do. This is something personal, but I do want to do something that is targeted at being as effective as possible, reaching, helping the most people in the most effective way. And I think that's a, a reasonable sort of compromise that most people can live with. All right, let's, let's move on and talk a bit about your advocacy work over the years, which has had a pretty, pretty big impact. I guess, as many listeners will know, you've sometimes gone out and made kind of very provocative or controversial arguments, I guess, seemingly as a way of kind of getting attention for maybe other ideas that, that matter more. Do you think, yeah, moral advocates should in general kind of court more controversy than they do? Or is that kind of just an, an approach that you think has, has worked for you in particular? Or, may, or maybe it hasn't worked out quite as, quite as, you, as you planned. So I don't think I've ever deliberately set out to be provocative by saying something that I didn't feel was was right. 
oh no, yeah, I wouldn't. But I guess there's like, there's a lot of different arguments you can make. And then sometimes it's like, you know, choose the one that might get a lot of attention because it's of greater interest to people. Yes, but I think you have to feel that it's at least as strong as any other argument that you could be at there making, um, that it's at least as plausible. And often, of course, the provocative arguments don't get expressed because I think most people are somewhat timid about sticking their neck out for something that other people are likely to jump on. So I think you know that idea of putting out an argument for discussion, if it's if it might be the right argument, and even if it has, as I say, as, as good a chance of being the right view as any other view around in that area, just to give it a run and see what happens. I think there's there's value in that. Now, you know, has that worked for me? I, I think probably it has. You know, sometimes people say to me, people who let's say support my views about global poverty, or perhaps they support my views about animals, or, or maybe both, but they don't support my views about euthanasia for severely disabled newborn infants, or allowing parents to opt for euthanasia for severely disabled newborn infants is is the view that I hold. And they say, look, you know, really, wouldn't it have been better if you'd never said that, because you get all this flack for that, and some people think that you're, you know, an evil person because of that. So two things that I want to say. Firstly. This may sound surprising now, but but when I wrote that, I didn't really expect it to be as controversial or provocative as it has become. And perhaps that's that's because at the time there wasn't really this disability movement and this sense of people with disabilities as a discriminated against minority. So, you know, I, I wrote that in, well, I guess the, I wrote the English edition of Practical Ethics, which certainly contains it. I think there were a couple of articles earlier, but, but that came out in English in, in 1979. And there wasn't really, you know, serious protest against that for 10 years. And those protests then arose when I went to speak in Germany, where the book had been translated into German. And by that time, there was a strong disability movement in Germany. And they pulled some quotes out of the book and circulated leaflets and things. And that led to a lot of protests. And that basically started it off. But the fact that there weren't these protests for 10 years suggests that, you know, I wasn't really deliberately trying to or knowingly trying to stir something up. So that's the first point. But the second point is, was that a bad thing or not? Well, if you look at the German sales of practical ethics, until 1989, when those protests occurred, it had been, I can't remember, four or five years in German. The sales were tiny, you know, they were, they were really small and they were flat, they were not increasing. And then in 1989, because of those protests, suddenly there was a lot of media about me and my views, you know, full page, front page of the kind of magazine section of the newspaper, Die Zeit. I was on TV and various other people in uh, Spiegel, which is a big, you know, equivalent of Time or Newsweek in Germany then. And then the sales really shot up. And the important point about this is is not that therefore more people read about my views about people with disabilities, which you might say, well, that's a small issue, you know, but the practical ethics has chapters on the treatment of animals, has chapter on global poverty, has chapters on other important issues. And so I think more people, and I, I know a lot of German students started reading practical ethics who probably would not have been reading it before. So that's why I say, I think it has probably helped rather than hindered. Because it sounds like the, the outcome there might have been that more people found out about a bunch of your views and probably came to agree with them because they hadn't heard that perspective before. Whereas another group of people kind of heard about them and maybe ended up kind of condemning all of them across the board because they're all associated with ideas that they don't like. Which I guess is like, it's a bit ambiguous whether that's that's good or not, whether it's like good to polarize people in favor and against and against your views. Kind of depends whether you want to, do you want to like produce like a small core of people who like go and really act on them? Or do you want to get like broad acceptance across society? 
Yes, but I'm not sure that you know, you're suggesting that everybody took my views on block, and I don't think that's true. I think there are people who said, well, I read your views and I still disagree with you about euthanasia and those issues, but I agree with what you say about global poverty and, and support that. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I'm in, I'm in that group that kind of disagrees about that specific point, then, but then agrees with a lot of the other stuff. But I do worry that people maybe, it's like there's a lot of kind of bleeding over where it's like if they think that you have like bad views on one issue, then they're kind of much less inclined to believe the other stuff. Or, or they, they might then condemn the underlying philosophy because it has this like undesirable consequence, they think. And so then they'd be like, well, utilitarianism must be wrong because of this implication it has about infanticide. And so that, therefore, like maybe I don't have to give to the developing world. And there may be some people who, who say that. I, I, I don't have a way of really saying whether that's you know, a lot of people or a small number of people who take that view. Yeah, related to this, when you're thinking about making an argument or pursuing a certain research project, do you like think a lot about basically the benefits that would happen if like people are persuaded that you're right? So like, do you think, okay, well, you know, this is going to produce a certain amount of utility if everyone changes their views on euthanasia and that is like the case for making this argument versus like the case for making an argument on like global poverty. One might think there's a lot more sort of utility at stake. Do you like weigh up those sorts of considerations before making these kinds of arguments or or not? Do you just go with like, say what's true? No, I, I, I am affected by the consequences of the projects that I work on. And interestingly, this goes right back to, I guess, the first major public thing that I that I did, which was writing Animal Liberation. And it's interesting looking looking back on it now because I realized that I was affected by the idea of the neglectedness of that cause, which is something, of course, that effective altruists talk about. The neglectedness of an issue is one of the major reasons for, for working on it. So this was at the time of the Vietnam War. So that was an issue, you know, as an undergraduate at the University of Melbourne, I was involved, actively involved in opposition to the war and opposition to conscription for the war. So that was an ongoing issue. Later, you know, this, uh, the time I'm talking about now is when I was a, a graduate student at Oxford. I also was also around the time I wrote Famine, Affluence and Morality. So I had got interested in that issue. And clearly I was interested in that issue because, you know, this is a big issue with potentially very good consequences. But when I became aware of the way animals are treated and started thinking about the lack of moral status that they have and the idea that this is unjustifiable, that this is speciesism, which is a prejudice or something like racism and sexism that leads us to disregard the interests of animals. And then I thought, well, you know, should I do more with this? Should I make this one of my major you know, research things? And I think the reason I chose to do that rather than to do more research on global poverty at the time, or for that matter, to do something about the war. I, I, actually, I wrote my Oxford thesis on civil disobedience in the context of the war. So it wasn't that I hadn't done something about that. But would I go on with that? I thought, well, the people who are working on animal welfare issues at this time, which is the early 1970s, are not philosophers, basically. And they approach it in a rather sentimental way. So, you know, they put out leaflets with pictures of cute puppies and kittens, and they say, you know, stop animal experimentation. And this obviously comes over to people like me as a rather sentimental approach. And then somebody else, some researcher will say, well, 90% of the animals used in research are not dogs or cats, but rats or mice or something of that sort. And then, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, then it doesn't matter. And I thought, there's a need for philosophers to put arguments here that this is not a matter of just loving animals and being sentimental about dogs or cats, but there is really 
something seriously wrong happening. There is a lot of unnecessary suffering being inflicted for no good reason. And perhaps I can make that argument where, generally speaking, it's not out there in the, in the public domain. That kind of discussion is not really being had. So I did feel that not only was this a really important issue, because of course there are billions of animals suffering, but it was an issue where maybe I had some skills that would add significantly to the state of the debate. Yeah, so uh, one reason that people might think it's a good idea to just say things that you think are true on the basis of the philosophy, even if they're very provocative to people, is that you might be able to have a very outsized impact that way. And kind of the model that Cass Sunstein has put forward on the show in a, in a previous interview that you might have heard is that you, kind of, you need first movers who are willing to just say the thing that people think is very objectionable in order to create cover for like other people to come out of the woodwork, admitting that actually they kind of do agree, even though this is <laughs> maybe a, a slightly t- taboo opinion. And then you kind of create this cascade of more and more people expressing this, this view that previously no one was advocating. I guess, yeah, does that fit with with your experience? And does that kind of in part motivate you to, to say things that otherwise like other people might be unwilling to say? I, I think it I think it has for you know at least some time in my career, maybe not early on, but once I had a, a tenured academic position and had some standing, then I felt I was safe, you know, or at least there was less risk for me. I wouldn't say it was completely safe, but uh, there was less risk for me in saying things that might lead to some reaction than for more junior academics who perhaps didn't have tenure. So yeah, I think Cass Sunstein is is right about that. There are sometimes a need for people to get out there and then other people may uh, come through with agreement on those things. You might think that this implies that, you know, we should be trying to make it easier for these sort of first movers to express these unpopular opinions. But like probably most unpopular opinions are are bad or like are, are, are false. Um, so like, do you think overall we should be trying to make it easier for people to express these unpopular views or not? Yes, provided that they're not only, you know, not just unpopular views, but are unpopular views that have good arguments or good evidence in support of them. So I don't want, you know, any kind of, I don't want to encourage any kind of crank or someone to say something that is unpopular where there's nothing much to be said in support of it. But if people have worked out arguments or, or reasons or evidence for believing something that is going to be unpopular, I think it's in general, it's probably good to, to get that out there. I'm sure you could think of exceptions where you wouldn't want that. But in general, I'm a, I'm a believer in freedom of speech, and I think that's a way to try to work out what are the defensible, justifiable positions and which are not. Because, yeah, an objection that people might raise is that you can't really cherry pick and like just have people you know express and get credit for good arguments because the general public maybe isn't very good at evaluating what arguments are sound and, and which ones aren't. So if we kind of, if we loosen the taboos on what people can say, then we, that will allow kind of bad ideas potentially to spread, kind of ideas that appeal to maybe our, our baser instincts, even if they're not well-founded in, in philosophy. And so maybe it's actually just like good to, in general, to have like strong speech taboos so that we don't end up allowing like really bad views to get a foothold. Well, the trouble with with that is that if if you do have these taboos, and if they do appeal, as you say, to our baser instincts, somebody is going to break those taboos anyway, and is going to take advantage of the fact that they are tabooed, and is going to attack those who are trying to enforce that taboo. And I think that's exactly what's happened in politics recently. I think the Trump phenomenon is an example of that, that Trump was prepared to say things that other people were not saying. And certainly they have encouraged you know, white supremacists and, and racists and anti-Semites and so on to, to be more open. And, and I think there has been a rise in the incidence of, of those quite wrong and objectionable views. But I don't think, you know, 
in a reasonably free society, I don't think you can actually stop that. I think that to to really try to enforce those taboos in some way would start to lead away from liberal democracy altogether to some more repressive society. And I'd be very reluctant to give up the freedoms that liberal democracies have at their core in order to achieve that. You've been doing advocacy on the basis of moral philosophy for almost 50 years now. Are there any strategic mistakes that you've made that you can talk about that people could learn from? Do you have a sense of what like some of the best strategic decisions that you made that weren't obvious at the time? <laughs> um, obviously, I, I do think that writing Animal Liberation was one of the best strategic decisions that I made because it has had a big impact. And it was a strategic decision in terms of being a neglected but important area. In terms of mistakes that I've made, I've occasionally given my opponents, you know, more of a opportunity to attack me than I needed to. Now, one of those we've already talked about, that's the question about euthanasia for disabled infants. But in a way, that was really, would, would have been hard for me to avoid if I was working in bioethics uh, in general. For example, if I wanted to write about abortion, as I did, again, in practical ethics, it obviously raises the question, well, what's the dividing line? What's the line? You know, you're saying it's okay to terminate the life of the fetus. Where exactly does that stop? And then you have to think, what's the dividing line? And I don't think dividing lines like, you know, viability or whatever are really very well grounded. And, you know, then what is it? Well, maybe it's the development of some kind of awareness in the fetus and what kind of awareness. And yeah, at least given, especially given the preference utilitarian position I was holding, then it would have been hard for me to avoid getting drawn into the idea of is birth the crucial dividing line? And, and if not, why not? But later on, uh, more, more, somewhat more recently, though not that recently anymore, I was asked to review a book on bestiality, on, on sex with animals, which I did. And I ended up saying that obviously people who have sex with animals in ways that doesn't respect the interests of the animals are doing something clearly wrong and should be prosecuted and grant standard anti-cruelty grounds. But there are a group of people who call themselves zoophiles who have, you know, loving but also sexual relations with an individual animal. And looking at that, I had to say, I couldn't really see that that was something that ought to be criminal anyway, right? Maybe you would think in, there's some sense in which that's wrong or I don't know. I am, I'm not even sure of that, but I, I do think that I can't see a reason why the criminal law should get involved if there's no harm to the animal or to the person or to anyone else. So I wrote that in the in the review, and that's you know, an even in a way, an even smaller issue than euthanasia for disabled newborns. It's not a totally insignificant issue, but it's but it's a, a very minor issue. And you know, I then got attacked for that, and that continues to resound over the years. You know, maybe just reminding people of it now on your <laughs> interviewers. Even not a good strategy, I don't know. But I think it, it probably would have been wiser to turn down that invitation to, to review the book. There's one offsetting thing that I'll just say there, and that is that I have been contacted by some people. In fact, I was contacted by a psychotherapist who was working with people who are zoophiles and who are very troubled by this and, you know, had, had very, very conflicted over it. And it was, was bad for them. And, and he gave them my review and it helped some of them to get over this and to see that, well, you know, maybe they shouldn't be so depressed or even potentially suicidal because of their sexual attraction to non-human animals in a, in a loving way. So, you know, it's not that it hasn't done any good, I think, but it's probably done, at least me, it may have done more harm than good. So, yeah, in terms of philosophical arguments that, that really do matter, are there any, I mean, you've written tons of stuff over the years. Is, is there anything that you think really was very important that in the end didn't actually get that much attention? 
Oh, no, I'm I'm pretty happy with the attention. I'm the, the you know the two most important areas are the animal liberation stuff and the global poverty issue, and they've had a lot of attention. The animal stuff from 1975 when the book was published, the global poverty issue didn't get that much attention for quite a long time. Famine, affluence, and morality got anthologized in a variety of readers, so quite a lot of philosophy students read it doing courses in in practical ethics. But it didn't really get out in the general public until after I came to Princeton. And actually, this is another interesting example of the, the benefits of the controversy about my views about euthanasia. Because when I was appointed to Princeton almost exactly 20 years ago now, there was a lot of controversy about that. In New York, you know, the right to life people protested my appointment and came to Princeton and staged protests at Princeton. Steve Forbes, who was running then for the Republican nomination for president and was a trustee at Princeton, protested about it. And the New York Times wrote it up and they said, this is the most controversy over a philosophy appointment since Bertrand Russell's appointment to the City University of New York back in 1940s, I think that was. So it got a lot of attention. And as a result of that attention, I got an invitation from an editor at the New York Times magazine, the thing that comes out on Sundays, to, to write something for them. And they said, you know, we think more people should know what your views are. And I chose not to write about what was making my appointment controversial, but to write about global poverty. And that was an article which they entitled, it wasn't my title, The Singer Solution to World Poverty. Uh, and that, in a way, started to bring my views on global poverty to the attention of a much wider audience. And I followed that up with another article for the New York Times a few years later about called How Much Should a Billionaire Give and How Much Should You? And that in turn led to my writing The Life You Can Save. The responses to those articles led me to think that now there is an audience for all of this uh, public audience. And the way to do that is to write a, a book aimed, you know, a trade book, not an academic book about it. So, you know, maybe that's another example of where having said something that was controversial led me to get an audience that I wouldn't have otherwise got. And so now I think those two areas, to go back to your original question, those two areas have had the due attention that they should have. And I do think that they're the areas that are most important that I've worked on. Third area that's obviously very important is is climate change. But in a way, what I've said there is less distinctive. There've been you know, that's not been a neglected area, not even by philosophers. And so there are other good philosophers. My friend and colleague Dale Jamison, who if you're at NYU, I guess you would know uh, very well on that for a long time. So I think that probably the areas where I've had something distinctive to say and that are also important have had adequate coverage. All right, let's let's move on and talk about some specific things that people are doing to improve the world in, in hopefully a big way. I guess, obviously, uh, you've been a big influence on the creation and direction of the effective altruism community. But I'm curious to know, what do you think are the EA community's kind of biggest mistakes in, in your view? So I, I think that the, the EA community has made mistakes in having too narrow a focus. Uh, you know, there is this discussion in the EA community about should we just focus on a small number of very sophisticated, high net worth individuals, or should we try to go for a, a broader audience? And although I understand the reasons for going for the, the high net worth, sophisticated individuals, I think that's a mistake. I, I think that EA has the potential to really transform philanthropy generally. And although there are certainly some high net worth individuals who give disproportionately large amount, of course, but still, when you look at philanthropy, say, here in the United States or other countries too, the bulk of it is is not just the huge donors. It's 
uh, a lot of people who give modest amounts and then uh, other people who give significant but not enormous, you know, not billionaire type amounts. And I think it's important that the movement should should go after them. And to do that, I think that the global poverty issue is perhaps together with the animal issue, but I would say, you know, first and foremost, global poverty is the issue to attract more people into the movement, to get them seeing that, yes, it's a good thing to help people in extreme poverty. Yes, you can be more effective by helping people in low-income countries than by helping people in your own community if you live in an affluent country, as most of these donors do. And yes, there is research which will show which organizations will make the best use of your money. I think those are really important things to do. Obviously, the organization, The Life You Can Save, that I helped found is aiming at that. And I think that you know, while I certainly respect those who are working on the long-term future and existential risk and so on. And I, I think that's, that is important work and should continue. But I'm troubled by the idea that that becomes or is close to becoming the public face of the EA movement, because I do think that there's only this much narrower group of people who are likely to respond to that kind of appeal. Yeah. So, so there is this interesting strategic challenge for effective altruism where it seems like if you're someone who wants to prioritize or like thinks that work on global poverty or animal welfare is particularly effective, then it seems like you probably want a pretty broad based movement because like like many, many people can contribute in some useful way to that. Whereas if you're, if you're more like me, who's like focused on this on long-termism, on uh, reducing existential risks, then strategically, it seems like you probably want to have like a more narrow movement because you want to focus on people who are going to be particularly influential in policy and like in international relations, maybe on donors who are going to, you know, do tons of research and be like very, very sophisticated in their actions. And so you end up with like these different clusters of people who have different cause focuses and then want kind of a different style of movement. I think people can't have it. Not everyone can can, can have their way. And, and like everyone's position kind of is internally coherent. It all makes sense. And it makes me wonder like sometimes whether one of these groups should like use the term EA and the other group should maybe use something else. Like perhaps the people who are focused on the long term should mostly talk about themselves as long termists. And then they can have the kind of the, the internal culture that makes sense given that given that focus. That's a possibility, and that might help the other group that you're referring to to make their views clear. So that certainly that certainly could help. I do think that actually there's benefits for the long-termists too in having a successful and broad EA movement because just as you know, I've seen this in the animal movement, I spoke earlier about how animal welfare movement when I first got into it was focused on cats and dogs and people who were attracted to that. And I clearly, I criticize that. But at the same time, I have to recognize that there are people who come into the animal movement because of their concern for cats and dogs, who later move on to understand that the number of farm animals suffering is vastly greater than the number of cats and dogs suffering, and that typically the farm animals suffer more than the cats and dogs. And so they've They've added to the strength of the broader and, as I see, more important animal welfare organizations or animal rights organizations that are, are working for farm animals. So I think it's possible that something similar can happen in the EA movement. That is, that people can get attracted to EA through the idea of helping people in extreme poverty. And then they're part of a community that will hear arguments about long-termism. And maybe so you'll be able to recruit more talented people to do that research that needs to be done if there's a broad and successful EA movement. Yeah. So speaking of long-termism, we've had a couple of moral philosophers on the podcast give arguments for why focusing on the long-term future is really important. And, uh, you know, just very briefly, those are basically just because 
it has such enormous potential to be good or bad. So setting aside for a minute strategic questions about the effective altruism movement or practical challenges about influencing the long-term future, what do you think about the arguments for and against long-termism? I think that there is a strong argument for long-termism taken in itself. How strong the argument is clearly does depend on this population issue question. So how great a loss it is if you think that vast numbers of people will never be born and will never experience good lives because of an extinction event that occurs before they're born. So if you hold the total view, which I'm sympathetic to in the sense that it's a coherent and consistent view and I don't have a better alternative, then you do take account of that loss of good lives, at least good lives. Again, we have to, we have to assume that life is or will continue to be or will become positive on the whole over this long-term future. But I think that's a reasonable assumption. So, so then you do have to take into account that this is a, as a vast loss, not, not merely as the, let's say, the loss of the 7.7 .7 billion people living on the planet now if an extinction event would occur today, but the loss of these futures that will never be lived. And even if I'm somewhat uncertain about the total view is against some other view, I certainly think that this is one of those cases where I should take account of the idea that if I'm uncertain and if I say, no, let's not worry so much about the long-termist view because it might be the case that really it's not such a bad thing if people who never come into existence don't have good lives. I would have to say, yeah, but I'm, I'm quite uncertain about that. So I have to give it significant weight. And of course, if you give it some weight, really, then the number of lives that will be lived, assuming you know the species survives for a billion years, is so vast that the expected utility becomes very great. So I, I accept that argument. I think that there are good reasons for thinking that long-term consequences are tremendously important and justify trying to make sure that there is a good long-term future. Okay, so it sounds like, so you think long-termism is, is kind of on strong philosophical grounds, but you're also maybe worried that effective altruism, like too large a fraction of effective altruism or like people associated with the community are now focused on long-termism. I guess, so that's on kind of strategic grounds because you're worried that it could limit like the full potential of this kind of school of thought, or maybe because, or maybe you, you have like practical concerns about whether we can actually find things that are predictably good for the long-term future. Yeah, both of those. Yeah. And we've already talked about the first of them and its effect on the movement as a whole and even on getting new people to come into the movement. But I do have concerns about knowing what we can do to reduce extinction risk. And obviously, those concerns vary with the nature of the risk. So if you have quite a concrete risk like asteroid collision, then I think we can, you know, we can estimate this risk. We can know what might reduce the risk. You know, NASA is already tracking large bodies that might collide with our planet, should continue to do that. We should also develop technology that would be able to deflect an asteroid or comet if it was on course to collide with our planet. That's something where it's, it's pretty clear that there is some risk, even if it's a very small one. And secondly, that we could know what would help to, to reduce that risk. When you get to some of the other things, I think it's much harder. And I think this is the with the sort of super intelligent artificial general intelligence taking us over. I think that's in that category. That is that it's hard to be confident that anything that we do now is really going to be effective in reducing that risk. 
Do you think, so for like specific individuals who are, let's say, well-placed to work on those issues, like let's say that you're, you know, at the cutting edge of machine learning research and, you know, you could like focus a bit more on like the robustness and reliability of those algorithms, or maybe you're involved in kind of setting US nuclear policy, or you're involved in, uh, you know, uh, the biological weapons convention. Seems like at least for some people possibly involved in in those areas, that there could be like things that they could do that seem like, you know, certainly better than 50-50 guesses at things that would make a catastrophe less likely. Yes, that's certainly true. And, and again, it, it varies for some of those things. So the, the, the nuclear weapon stuff, that's a risk also, you know, a bit like the asteroid one that is here and now, and where I think we can have quite a good idea of what will reduce that risk. Maybe the, the pandemic one as well. With the machine, person who's, you know, the cutting edge of machine learning, yeah, so some of the people that I've talked to who are in that situation still think that uh, artificial general intelligence is is far off. And so they themselves think that, you know, it's going to take, if it's going to take sort of another 50 years anyway, then we'll know more about it and how likely it is and also how you could align the values of uh, the general intelligence with, with ours. We'll know more about that in 20 or 30 years when we have a better sense of how it's going to come about than we do today. I guess it seems like, yeah, the machine learning researchers at the frontier are kind of just all over the place in their forecast. Like some of them think it might be 10 years, some of them think it might be 100 years. So I guess I'm kind of, I'm keen to have at least like some people working on it now as kind of an insurance policy in case like things do advance maybe faster than than we think is the, is, is the most likely scenario. Yeah. And then I guess those, those people who think it's coming soon also tend to have like more concrete ideas about what they can do to make it more safe now because they like, they have a particular vision for how things might play out in the, in the nearer term. Yeah, and certainly I, I, I'm definitely not in a position to say that they're wrong about that. I'm, I'm only in a position to say that other people think that it's, as you say, it's it's much longer. So yeah, I have, I, you know, I certainly don't object at all to trying to get people in that area who think that it's coming relatively sooner to do work on trying to avoid bad consequences coming from it. That seems perfectly reasonable, but but that's a relatively modest kind of investment. And I don't think that should be kind of the public face of VA. And, and that's what worries me again for those strategic reasons. What do you think would be sort of the appropriate share of the resources of the effective altruism community to go to basically long-termist focused causes? So if you're including all long-termist causes, I think that could be quite significant. I'd be happy for there to be significant resources going into the the risks that are here and now, um, asteroid collision and uh, perhaps even more nuclear war and nuclear weapons and so on, yeah, and pandemics. I'd, I'd be happy for quite a lot to go to those areas. And, you know, I certainly think a lot should go into climate change, whether that's actually an extinction risk or not is obviously controversial. But I do think that trying to mitigate climate change and help ad- adaptation to it is very important for the global poverty side as well. So insofar as that is an ex- existential risk, I think a lot of resources should go into that. You know, I, I'm not going to put a percentage figure on it, but I, I think it's quite reasonable for those causes to have a very significant proportion of resources. You mentioned that you're still writing columns for Project Syndicate. It seems like you have a lot going on. Do you have time for lots of original research these days? And if so, you know, what is it on? So when I'm at Princeton, as I am this fall semester, I don't really have time for significant amounts of original research. I'm teaching. I'm teaching a, at the moment. I'm teaching a big undergraduate course in practical ethics. I organise a, a visiting speaker seminar series, and I do some of this smaller pieces of writing, usually for for the general public. But I do have time for writing and research in the other semester because then I'm on leave from from Princeton. I go back to Australia, where I'm originally from, and where 
my children and, and grandchildren are. So my wife and I get to spend time with them. And although I have a kind of a loose attachment with the University of Melbourne, it's not very demanding. I give some lectures in other people's courses, but I don't run a course myself. And that gives me more time for research and writing. There's a couple of projects that are sort of moving along. One that's been around for a while but hasn't got very far is looking at global population because you and other listeners will be familiar with the population issues in ethics that Derek Parfit pioneered and that have been very extensively discussed about whether it's better to have a, a larger population with a lower average happiness but a greater total amount of, of happiness or some other principle that doesn't lead to that maximizing total. Clearly, that's that's got to be relevant in any discussion of population. But what I and the co-author, or possibly it'll be co-authors, we haven't sorted that out quite yet, want to talk about is much more the current question of, is there a population problem? And if so, what is an ethical approach to it? And we're particularly focusing on sub-Saharan Africa as the place where population is growing fastest and it's growing fastest in some of the world's poorest countries. And we're looking at whether that is a problem, both in terms of reducing poverty overall, in terms of environmental questions as well, obviously, and some of those related issues. And we are discussing with, I probably shouldn't mention names yet, but we're discussing with someone who comes out from Nigeria to be a co-author of this because we don't want to just have kind of Westerners talking about Africa from a distance. Yeah. So speaking of population ethics, it seems like over the last 10 or 15 years, you've had some significant changes in your like views on, on moral philosophy. Something you kind of kind of moved from preference utilitarianism to more being interested in hedonistic utilitarianism. Maybe you've also like maybe shifted your view on population ethics from something that was somewhat more person affecting towards being more sympathetic to the total view. And perhaps also a bit of a shift from moral anti-realism to being more sympathetic to moral realism. Maybe do you want to like lay out what you think those shifts are and maybe whether they were connected in, in some way and why, why they're related? You're right about the first and the third of those. That is, I have moved from preference utilitarianism to hedonistic utilitarianism. And that's related to the move from, well, you can call it anti-realism to realism. Or, you know, when I was doing this, it was usually referred to as non-cognitivism to a form of, of cognitivist or objectivist moral theory. Yeah, so let me talk about those in a moment. But I don't think my position on population has really changed very much recently. If you go way back, one of the first pieces I wrote for a, a book called Ethics and Population, edited by Michael Bales in the 70s, was trying to defend something like a person-affecting view, anyway, definitely an alternative to the total view. That was subjected to a, a devastating criticism from Derek Parfit in the same book. And I really didn't feel that I could adequately respond to that criticism. So I more or less dropped that. And from then on, I would say I've been just uncertain about this issue. I'm somewhat sympathetic to the total view. The total view has the great virtue of being a coherent and consistent position. But of course, many people find its implication of what Parfit called the repugnant conclusion to be just that, repugnant, and therefore they don't want to accept the total view. I'm somewhat inclined to say maybe we just have to swallow the repugnant conclusion and not trust our intuitions in these rather strange sorts of choices that we're forced to make. But going back to the other point, I think the significant change there was the move away from yeah, what you could call an anti-realist view, anyway, a view that was based originally on Hare's universal prescriptivism, that is the idea that moral judgments, prescriptions, and prescriptions come out of the same language family as commands. So commands are not true or false. They're prescriptions for action. And in that sense, this is a non-cognitivist theory. 
But Hare was always interested in trying to get an element of reason into his prescriptivism. He disagreed with the standard emotivists like A.J. Eyre or C.L. Stevenson, who thought that moral judgments are just expressions of emotions and there's not really much basis for reasoning about moral judgments. You know, you just favor this or you don't favor it. Except, of course, maybe in terms of understanding the consequences and implications of certain principles. There's, there's role for reason there, but not in the fundamental moral judgments. And I tried to pursue that and I tried for many years in various articles I wrote about it to strengthen the basis for reason in that, which, which for Hare was always linguistic. For Hare, it was the fact that using moral language required you to universalize and universalizability brought an element of reason into your judgments. But the problem with that was that somebody could always say, okay, so I'm just not going to use words like ought um, or good, which, you know, carry this universalizability. And you haven't shown me that there's anything irrational in acting on judgments that I don't universalize. And I wanted to argue that there is. And I tried to do that in various ways within Hare's model and eventually decided that that didn't work, couldn't work. It was maybe uh, 15 years ago or something like that. I came to abandon that. And that led me to shift towards some kind of moral realism, I suppose, influenced by, uh, again, Derek Parfit in uh, On What Matters, and to some extent by Tom Nagel, who also talked about this. And that shift, you know, so so with, within Hare's framework, more or less, the preference utilitarianism fell out of the idea that you're prescribing universally, that you have to put yourself in everyone's positions, and that means you have to take account of their preferences, and that means that the right thing to do, or the thing that you can prescribe universally, is something that takes account of everybody's preferences and sums them up, and that leads you to a preference utilitarianism. Once you, you know, are not within that framework, you're much more open to think of things as objectively good, independently of whether people prefer them or not. And that plus criticisms about preferences and, you know, is it really good to satisfy preferences if they're somewhat crazy preferences? You know, those sorts of questions led me to think that maybe really preference utilitarianism wasn't the most defensible position and that something like the classical utilitarianism view that pleasure or let's say let's say states of consciousness okay mental states really where value lies that if there were if there were no conscious beings there wouldn't be value in the universe and so given that we have conscious beings then positive states of consciousness pleasure happiness you know whatever you want to call it are positive values and negative pain suffering misery are negative values and that you know, I, I reread Sidgwick and I co-authored a book with Katarzyna de Lazari Ruddick called The Point of View of the Universe about Sidgwick and trying to restate Sidgwick in the most plausible way and taking into account modern discussions of ethics. And part of that process led me to say, look, I, I now do think that hedonistic utilitarianism is more defensible than preference utilitarianism, which which is not to say that I'm you know 100% convinced that it's the truth, but I think it's it's the most defensible ethical normative view that I, as I see it at present. Okay, just to check to make sure that I understand what the relationship between these two shifts were for you. Are you saying like, so you were an anti-realist or a non-cognitivist and then for various reasons decided that that couldn't work and then that sort of just freed you up to like start considering a new what was good for people, whether it was the satisfaction of preferences or whether it was just sort of happiness broadly construed. And then once you were sort of just considering that on the merits, you ended up going with the latter. 
Yes, I think that's a good summary of the process that I went through. Is there some kind of connection maybe between thinking that conscious states are what really matters, which like then leads people to think that, well, because like conscious states are some real thing about the universe, then maybe there's some like naturalist foundation for for ethics, which like causes you to then be like more sympathetic to realism? No, I don't think I don't think that's quite right. Firstly, I I don't I'm not a naturalist. I, I still accept the idea that there is this you know, gap, as Hume said, between is and ought, that we can't move from is statements to ought statements. So I'm a, a non-naturalist realist or non-naturalist objectivist, whichever of those terms you, you want to use. And that's, I think, also Sedgwick's view that this, the sense in which these are truths is somewhat similar to the sense in which mathematical truths are truths, or you know, at least on, on one defensible view of the philosophy of mathematics. These are substantive truths that any rational being would come to. And similarly, I think Sidgwick argued that he, he came up with, with three axioms of ethics and argued that they are things which also, you know, if, if we're thinking rationally, we should be able to agree on them. And of those, the most important is that the, the good of any being is equally important as the similar good of any other being. So uh, it's a kind of equality, although because it's similar good, if there are some beings who can experience great good and other beings who aren't capable of that, then you would give more weight to the interest of the beings who can experience greater good, or, or you would get more you would get more good out of that, more value out of that. But you, you don't discount it because that being is, you know, not you, not someone you know, someone distant from you, somebody living maybe in a future century. You can discount that for uncertainty, of course, but not otherwise, or a matter of another race or, or even a matter of another species. All of these options that we've been discussing are sort of within the consequentialist framework. If you were to find out somehow that the right moral theory was not within consequentialism, what do you think would be the next most plausible view? And how likely do you think it would be to be true? Uh, okay. So I do. I find it hard to imagine that consequentialism is not true, or at least is not true to some extent, right? Put it this way. Suppose that I believe, came to believe that there are some rules that you should never violate. There are some moral rules. You know, let's, let's say the rule might be you should never torture an innocent human being. A lot of people would think that's an a, absolute rule. You know, as a consequentialist, I can imagine scenarios in which you would do that. So, you know, the, the ticking bomb scenario where the terrorist has planted this nuclear bomb, you've caught the terrorist, but the terrorist is, you know, even if you torture the terrorist, he won't tell you. But you also have the terrorist's five-year-old daughter. And if you torture her, then the terrorist will tell you. You have some psychological profile that leads you to have confidence in this. And then you'll be able to save millions of people. So I would torture the five-year-old girl in those circumstances. But let's assume that I were convinced that that was wrong, that that was a mistake. I would still think that when you're not violating that rule, you ought to do the most good you can. So in that sense, I would be a, be a consequentialist for every case other than those that involve torturing innocent people, which fortunately in all of my years of life as a consequentialist, I've never had a situation where it would have produced good consequences to torture some innocent person. So it wouldn't really change my, my day-to-day living very much. And then I suppose you could imagine, well, suppose I became convinced of a lot of other rules that were absolute. It would reduce the scope of doing the most good you can. But I think any plausible view is going to have to say, once you're not violating any absolute moral rules, or once you've met all your duties, whatever they might be, right, they might be specific, they might be the view that you have particular duties to your family or something like that. But once you've done all of that, 
then if you have the opportunity to do more good or not to do more good, do less good, it's better to do more good. So I can't really imagine myself abandoning consequentialism even you know all of the way, if you like, and not thinking that that's important. So it sounds like you think the most plausible alternative option is kind of consequentialism plus some kind of like side constraints like around rights or autonomy or justice that you couldn't violate. That's right. I think that would be, that's, that's the only plausible option to me. Okay, so if moral realism is true, then there are sort of facts of the matter about what's right and wrong, and people are making moral mistakes periodically. What do you think is the heart of making moral mistakes? Is it following your intuitions wherever they lead? Is it resisting your intuitions in favor of like a, you know, following a theory down some sort of crazy path? Like, how problematic do you think these different kinds of moral mistakes are? I think both of those are, are true, actually. Both of those occur, and it's hard for me to say which are the more important ones. I, I've certainly written more about people mistakenly following moral intuitions. And so, for example, because I've said I've done a lot of work about ethics and animals, and I think there's a lot of the, you know, people just intuitively think that animals don't count, you know, and that's clearly, I guess, something that is a sort of evolved response that we care about others and particularly others close to us. We don't care about those who are more distant and animals are even more distant than other humans. But also the the intuition that I don't have obligations to help people who are in great need on the other side of the world, people I can't see, statistical lives, if you like, rather than an identifiable child that I can see. I think our intuitions mislead us a lot in those cases. But there are some cases where you wish people had followed their intuitions. There's a speech that Heinrich Himmler gave in Poznan to the SS in which, you know, I think they've just cleared out a ghetto of Jewish people or something and they've all murdered them or sent them off to be murdered. And he says something to them about, you know, what, you, what we are doing today can never be written and recorded as history, but it's an, it's an honorable thing to do, despite the fact that uh, any decent person must find some repulsion or something. I, I don't remember his exact word, but basically he's saying that this is repulsive to most decent people, but it's the right thing to do because it purifies the Aryan race or whatever. So you wish that Himmler had listened to that intuition that this is a repulsive thing to do, of course. So, so it does go both ways. There are cases where we have decent intuitions and ideologies lead us to ignore them. And there are other cases where we have intuitions that lead us astray. So I guess some people who are sympathetic to hedonistic or classical utilitarianism think that we should mostly ignore kind of our moral intuitions about specific cases and instead kind of go with this like one intuition or this thing that they think we have kind of kind of direct access to, which is that kind of our personal experience of pleasure is good and our personal experience of like negative, you know, conscious states is, is bad. And they're like, yeah, how we like, yeah, how we apprehend like various different like cases that people can give in thought experiments just like isn't reliable evidence at all. Do you have any reaction to that? Yeah, that's a view that I'm strongly sympathetic to. So in, in the case of, of pleasure or pain, not even sure it's quite right to call it an intuition. We have direct experience of pleasure and we, I think, directly experience it as something good in itself and of pain as, as something bad. Whereas I think the more specific intuitions about particular cases do get to be more subject to, in some cases, cultural influences and in some cases, their evolved influences, intuitions that helped us or our group to survive in other conditions, but are no longer relevant for today's conditions. 
So a lot of people that you know and that we know have taken uh, interest in the question of like, okay, what should we do when we are morally uncertain? Not just uncertain about the facts in the world, but also about, say, whether consequentialism or some other moral theory is true or, you know, what even just what variety of consequentialism is true, whether hedonistic utilitarianism or some other version is true. How do you think we should go about approaching sort of moral questions in the real world when we're uncertain about these things? I think that we should take that uncertainty into account in in some way. I don't think we should be overly confident or overly dogmatic that we know what is right. Clearly, we, we have, I guess, stronger convictions on some things than others. As I just said earlier, I have a very strong conviction that consequentialism is either the entirely right theory or that it's with some side constraints, it's it's the right theory. And if you like, I have a strong conviction in particular cases, say that, that Kant was wrong when he said it was always wrong to tell a lie, no matter you know what the consequences would be. So those things, I find it really hard to imagine that I'm wrong about that, but still, I guess there, you know, he can't be 100% certain. And then there are other things as, as what you mentioned as to whether hedonistic utilitarianism or some other form of consequentialism is right, where I certainly admit a much more significant degree of uncertainty. And also we talked earlier about the population issue. I mean, I guess that's not a terribly practical issue in terms of everyday decisions, but where it is relevant, then I agree there's quite a substantial amount of uncertainty about whether the total view is the right view or there is some kind of theory X, as Parfit called it, and was always looking for, but never really came up with a satisfactory theory theory X that would be an alternative to the total view. So I think we should try to take into account the possibility that we're mistaken. And people like Toby Ord and Will McCaskill say have written about this and say that you should take into account that possibility and maybe it should affect your choices so that you don't do the thing that if you're wrong will be much worse. That does seem to me to be relevant in some choices that we make. All right, let's let's push on to some audience questions. Yeah, so, so I said I was going to interview you on uh, Twitter and Facebook, and there was a, a couple of topics that came up just again and again from listeners. So the first one was, what are your kind of views on immigration? I guess there's a lot of people who think that potentially promoting freedom of people to move from very poor countries to rich countries could be among the very best things that we could do for global development, which is perhaps more a question for kind of economists and sociologists than a philosopher. But yeah, do you, do you kind of have a, have a view on whether that's something that maybe people focused on global development should think about more? The answer to that is really no, because um, <laughs> even though in theory that might be true, you just have to look at the effect not of open borders, but of small you know, increases in immigration on the political situation in the United States, in almost every country in Europe. It's been a disaster, right? It's led to the election of Donald Trump, which is not only bad for immigrants trying to get into the United States, it's catastrophic for climate change efforts. It's catastrophic for the whole landscape of, of politics in, in a myriad of ways. You look at it in the UK where you are, clearly the Brexit vote would not have passed without concern about immigration, even at the rather modest level that it was into the UK. And I think, you know, I'm very much opposed to, to Brexit. I, I think we have to support international institutions. And this is happening in, in so many other countries now. Uh, so the Polish government was elected and now re-elected with support on the immigration issue. And, you know, they're also pro-coal. So that's also very bad to, for climate change. We're getting these right-wing parties in pretty much every European country now. So I think that to fail to take account of the political effect of advocating open borders is extremely naive. 
Yeah, I actually think that's is the top explanation or like people's fears about migration probably is the single best explanation for, for like the single biggest predictor for them supporting Trump or Brexit. But the interesting thing is that people's like fears about rates of migration are surprisingly or like in the long term seem surprisingly unrelated to the actual rate of legal migration. So, so I think actually that might have been more driven by the Syrian refugee crisis in the sense that kind of there was like a breakdown of like lawful migration on, on borders and kind of maybe perceptions matter more than reality here. Well, it's not numbers. I agree it's not numbers, but it it is the sense of losing control of the borders. I think that's the common thing. And you know, the Syrian refugee crisis had an effect in Europe. It had no effect on the United States, minuscule numbers, and it wasn't the focus. The focus there was people coming across the Mexican border, and that's why Trump wanted to build a wall, et cetera. And, and it was the sense that we're losing control of our nation. And going back a little earlier, Australia went through this as well with the boat people, so-called the asylum seekers, coming across in small boats from Indonesia, which again helped to elect a conservative government in the 90s, the, the Howard government, rather than labor governments during that era. And maybe even contributed to the re-election of the Morrison government just recently, which is also a very bad government on climate change. So you're right that it's, it's, it's perceptions and the perceptions don't depend on numbers, but they do depend on do we have control of our borders, right? That's the issue. And of course, if you really advocate open borders, you're saying there should be no control of the borders. And that's going to frighten people. So something else that a number of listeners brought up is that there's this sense that it's more humane to eat wild-caught animals rather than farmed animals, I guess so they don't suffer mistreatment during factory farming. Do you think that's broadly right or wrong? Do you think there's any circumstances that you know point in either direction in specific cases? Clearly, it does depend on the animals and circumstances, but, but broadly speaking, yes, it's right. And I've, I've written this too, that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, people, people oppose deer hunting, right? Here I am in Princeton where we've eliminated all the predators for deer. It used to be wolves and then it was indigenous Americans. They're gone. The major predator of the deer at the moment is the motor vehicle because people hit them in their cars at night and, you know, obviously they, they damage their car, they can injure themselves and um, they kill the deer. So, you know, should you be opposed to a hunter in Princeton who hunts deer and who's a really good shot and takes care to make sure that he only shoots the deer when he knows that he can kill it with a single bullet. Well, you know, I mean, you can oppose it clearly, but but I think compared to going down to the supermarket and buying a piece of pork that comes from a factory farm pig, it's it's doing negligible harm. So I certainly agree that, you know, if you take those comparisons, it's hunting is less something that's worth opposing than, than factory farming. Does that extend to kind of fish caught in the in the open ocean? I mean, again, you know, it's it's better to eat fish caught in the open ocean, I think, than to eat fish that are farmed. And the main problem with that is that there there isn't the equivalent of dropping the the deer with a single bullet. There's no real humane slaughter for fish, so they are going to suffocate and die slowly. Or depending how they're caught, they might be hauled up in nets where they're. Uh, you know, really compressed together in this net. If they're deep sea fish, they might be dying of decompression as they come up from the depths, which would be a very painful death as well. And the other question about fishing in the ocean is that, you know, there's a sustainability question. We're overfishing the oceans. But of course, buying fish from aquaculture doesn't help, at least if you're buying carnivorous species of fish like salmon, because you have to get two kilos of, you know, other fish to feed the salmon to produce one kilo of salmon. So yeah, you know, to some extent, you know, it's, it's somewhat better. Let's say you're an angler and you go down and you throw your line in the ocean and you pull out fish. And as soon as you get them on the hook, you make sure that you kill them. That's definitely better than buying either aquaculture fish or fish from a commercial trawler. 
guess it seems like we would need to know how bad their death would be otherwise if they weren't caught through fishing because they might like die very gradually of old age or ill health or parasites or starve to death possibly or be caught by predators and then we don't know how kind of how quickly they die in that situation so we've got to kind of consider the counterfactual death as well i suppose that's true although of course yes we're, we're killing them earlier than they would have otherwise been killed because they're alive when you kill them and so so the number of fish deaths increases i guess you get more young fish surviving because you've reduce the competition and then they get killed as well. So it's, it's not an easy calculation to make, but yeah, you're, you're basically right. I guess maybe one, one final one might be, uh, what, what do you think is the kind of biggest positive practical impact you've, you've had in your career that, that listeners might be able to learn from? I suppose, is there, is there anything other than writing animal liberation, which I'm guessing might be the answer? I think writing animal liberation probably is the answer, but I'm, I'm hoping that the reaction we get to the new release of the updated version of The Life You Can Save, you know, making it free will, will mean that it gets a big readership and perhaps ultimately then the impact of my work on global poverty will come to equal the impact of my work on, on animals, if, if not surpass it. Maybe your biggest impacts are still, uh, still ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> that would be very fortunate. All right. Our guest today has been Peter Singer. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Peter. Thanks. It's been great talking to you both. It was great to have you, Peter. And listeners, as always, we'll put up links so that you can learn much more about all the topics that we've discussed on our website, as well as a full transcript of the conversation. Until next time. All right. So we were under a bit of a time pressure in the interview because we only had uh, Peter for about, for about an hour. But we raised a hell of a lot of issues and uh, I guess we had some, had some thoughts to, to follow up with. Uh, <laughs> do you want to start? One thing that we barely talked about, but which is super interesting, is the question of whether the EA movement should, like what the face of the EA movement should be, whether it should be global poverty or something else. And also you brought up the possibility of like the EA movement splitting into different movements. Maybe there's like a global poverty focused one or a global poverty and animal focused one, and then like a more long-termist one. So my reaction to that is just, I, I think that there are a lot of really good things about the EA movement being a lot of different causes together. So one thing is like, you know, Peter said, maybe EA has the potential to really revolutionize philanthropy and, and doing good. And I sort of agree with that. And I think one of the main ways it might do that is through basically promoting cause neutrality and the idea that you don't need to be sort of attached to a particular cause and having all of these different causes over one umbrella seems like a, a really kind of amazing way to demonstrate that. Yeah, uh, that definitely seems like one of the biggest benefits is having a group of people who uh, kind of all share the same underlying philosophy, but then are willing to go in different directions just based on which problems they think are, are most important. But that's also one of the ways that EA as a community or as an intellectual movement is very weird and, and almost unique maybe uh, yeah. as, a, as a group trying to do good is to have people focused on such different like object level issues. Mm -hmm. Things that, as we're kind of pointing out, like sometimes don't really have that much overlap or they use like, such different methods that there's not a lot of learning that you can do across them. There's not a lot of like shared goals about like concrete, yeah, concrete projects. I guess maybe they look a little bit like um, political parties in some ways, which obviously potentially have like very broad platforms or incorporate all kinds of different ideological groups mm. within them. With like some like similar worldview sort of underlying it all, but then you like add some premises here and some premises there and you get the like uh, different things that people want to focus more on. Yeah, but there's often electoral systems provide like a very strong force in favor of people grouping, mm. uh, forming coalitions across uh, different kind of factional groups that potentially don't have all that much in common. I mean, if you look, yeah, look in the US, the, the winner-takes-all winner system or the uh, first-past-the-post system um, makes it very hard to have anything other than two major parties. Yeah. And so, uh, if, yeah, if you're like a, a new group, you kind of have to choose a party to, to try to have influence on and then like, you know, lobby inside that group 
because to start starting a new party is uh, just never really going to work because you're basically just not splitting the vote and, and hurting your cause. Yeah. Anyway, so we maybe look a little bit like uh, a broad broad political party, um, but then I'm not sure that there is like as strong reasons uh, for, for for grouping. And there's like lots of potential problems you could get where I guess people end up wanting to fund different things, wanting to like prioritize different projects, and yeah. then this can potentially create frictions uh, or just confusion maybe also among the public. But like, what are you doing? So you're like doing this AI stuff and the and the global poverty and the animals. It's like it, it looks very strange. Uh, I think if you're just encountering it like in a very oblique way. Okay, that makes me think of a couple of things. So one, the fact that it's like strange and different, I mm. think, is not necessarily a weakness. Now, it does seem like the fact that this hasn't been done that many times before in the sort of outside of the sort of political party world uh, might give us reason to think that it's a bad idea. Um, mm. But also, I think it's something that attracts people to the EA movement. It's like, well, you don't need to be convinced that one thing is the most important thing to work on in order to be part of this community because like there's all this moving around that you can do within it. And it's also kind of just demonstrating this fact that like mm. we're interested in like good per se yeah. and not like just this kind of good or that kind of good. But I do think like uh, there's one way in which it's especially strange to have a variety of different causes within EA because it's explicitly about prioritization. It's yeah. explicitly about like doing the most good. <laughs> and so you know that these things are going to sort of necessarily compete for funding and attention with each other because everybody like is trying to figure out where to put their next dollar. So that might make it actually even especially strange. Yeah. You mean it's strange that there are so many different conclusions that are very different? No, I guess I don't think that's strange insofar as like it's really hard to figure out what the best thing to do is and people are going to have different beliefs that lead them in different directions. I meant more like you could imagine a movement that didn't have as much focus on prioritization having lots of different causes within yeah. it where they sit more peacefully together yeah. because people are happy to say, let's just do it all and not worry about what's yeah. more important than what. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, I guess, yeah, maybe years ago I thought that the main problem would be uh, people bickering over yeah, yeah, where uh, kind of people and um, money should be going, uh, which which causes to prioritize. Yeah. But actually, it's incredible. There's been like almost no fighting about that. Uh, or, like people seem to get along very well in in that way. Um, I suppose in the in the episode, I was suggesting that the main problem is just with kind of messaging and the strategy for a group of people, where these different problems kind of potentially demand like quite different different ways of coordinating people or different different sizes and kind of wanting to attract different people. Mm. And this creates like tensions that are like a little bit hard to resolve and as much as you're a long-termist maybe you want to like attract particular kinds of people for example you might be like particularly interested in policy particular policy areas like national security or uh, you know nuclear weapons and that just like probably is, you probably want a pretty different vibe for that than if you're doing you know animal activism i don't know i guess this doesn't really feel like it should be a problem in the way that competition for resources seems like there's like just a really clear mechanism and also i don't know you know more about this than me probably but like it seems like there's at least some sense of like no, we think this is more important than you guys think it is. And so you should like focus more on it and like, oh, these organizations should do more to promote this cause area because I think that this is like more important than the attention that it's getting and blah, 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 blah. But like that's that all like totally makes sense. Yeah. Whereas it doesn't really seem like necessarily a problem to me to have uh, different causes needing sort of different types of people because why can't you just bring them all in and have this big tent and you know of course maybe the, the national security people want to hang out more with a certain group and the animal people want to hang out more with a certain group but like it doesn't really seem like it should be a problem to have them all called ea and all sort of reading the same forum or whatever um, whatever it means for it all to be one movement 
Yeah, well, I mean, in as much as you have people focused on different problems who just hang out amongst themselves and don't talk that much across different problems, then that's almost like, you know, half breaking it up in the first place. Y uh, yeah, that, that seems right. So it might just be that there's not that much collaboration that's possible between particular, like, different uh, different causes. I guess um, In so. which case, like, well, yeah, what are the, what are the synergies of, of combining them together? I guess it is this thing of, like, sticking out this claim that we're trying to do the most good per se and we're, like, open to, to switching yeah. from that we work on, which is, like, especially distinctive. Yeah, also, I mean, I guess I think, what's the downside of breaking up EA and what's the downside of keeping it together? If the downside of keeping it together is stuff like, well, maybe it, like, creates some unnecessary faff and, like, people have to sort through more posts about things they don't care about when they're trying to find stuff to read. You know, that doesn't seem that mu like like that big of a downside, whereas mm. it seems like the downsides of breaking it up could be much bigger. So, like, at least... Insofar as we think that like a lot of movements for doing good have had on sort of blinders, have not communicated enough with like other groups, have not been open enough to changing their focus and so on and so forth. And we think that that's been bad, which I guess I, I think I think that and it seems to be something that other people in the EA movement think. That seems like a much more important kind of failure that like keeping everyone together seems like it could at least like partially guard against. Yeah. So I guess uh, people are concerned about uh, effective altruism as a community kind of becoming too closed intellectually, uh, which, uh, like, yeah, I, I do think is a legitimate worry. But I suppose it would be even worse if you then like break it down into just a subset of that, like the people who are focused on this like one problem, like taking a particular yeah. effective altruist style lens on it. Yeah. Uh, naturally, they're going to be like exposed to even fewer like other ideas. Um, so, th so that does seem does seem like a benefit. I guess yeah. To to return to the problem that we were identifying in the episode, it was that if you are focused on poverty, maybe you want to go for a branding or like an explanation of EA that makes sense to tens of millions of people mm. whereas if you're focused on kind of long-termism and nuclear security or you know risks from emerging technologies uh perhaps the way you would explain what ea is or the explain that you would explain what you're doing is very different because it's just like a very different crowd that you're trying to, you might want to attract people who are older yeah more senior perhaps like i don't know would it be like more or less philosophy i'm not sure but yeah in as much as you just kind of groups like independently going out and trying to attract different people that maybe seems fine but in as much as they end up with like conflicts where they're each like promoting different messages that then and maybe not only different, but like conflicting, then that seems uh, like challenging from a branding point of view. You can yeah. imagine having like one company that has different products that like have very different customers and then uh, <laughs> and know, people, like two different marketing departments, each like promoting different idea of what, you know, Pepsi is. Well, people do get mad when they find out that like Coke owns like the, you know, healthy drink things. You, you like hear people yeah. like these like conglomerates, like they own both the unhealthy thing and the healthy thing. I can't deal with this fact. Um, no, but uh, I guess are people like confused used or is this already a phenomenon maybe i'm just not aware of it where like there are these different sort of branding techniques from different ea orgs that have different focuses and people are actually being like well i don't get it like what is ea is it this or is it that is it is it into this more i mean we, we keep speaking in super generalities yeah. maybe we should say like more of a well, no, I don't well, know how to. I actually don't know how to characterize this difference. Well, it definitely is the case that uh, you know people will encounter one project that some people involved in effective altruism are working on, and mm -hmm. then they'll assume that that is, but more or less, what the whole thing is. Okay. So, so the class yeah. classically, people would think that effective altruism is like give well. Uh, so it's looking into for evidence based charities that help people in, de yeah. in developing well. Okay. And then uh, they're like very confused where, or don't believe you when you say that there's like other aspects to it, and that's not what effective altruism actually is. I see. Uh, but th this happens too when they, they encounter the you know artificial intelligence safety research. Maybe they don't like that. And they're like, wow, this effective altruism thing seems like garbage <laughs> because yeah. they've encountered like one aspect of it that they don't like. And, yeah. and then because it is so abnormal to have 
a group of people or yeah, I guess, uh, yeah. who are focused on so many di- completely disparate projects. Uh, so then I feel like the question then is like, what happens when, okay, so they don't believe, so let's take the case where they think effective altruism is give well. You say like, oh, also EAs work on like AI risk stuff. And they say like, no, I mean, that's like, that must be a small part of it. Or that's like, that doesn't, I, I just don't buy that that's one thing. Um, what happens to their attitude to the like people who work on AI risk? Are they like, oh, well, I don't consider this the same thing, but I'm still like, I think it's just as interesting as I would have if I encountered it as a like named different movement, in which case it seems fine. And like, it makes no difference whether they consider it part of the same movement or, or a different movement, or do they, is it somehow worse? Do they encounter it in a worse way because of this initial idea that EA is give well? Yeah, I'm not sure whether it shifts their opinion of any of the other parts. I think the main thing is that the conversation just becomes very confused because people will express opinions about effective altruism as, as a whole mm. that really only relate to like one small aspect of it. Yeah. So you can imagine someone saying, oh, effective altruism is mistaken because in fact we shouldn't be using randomized controlled trials. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then you're like, well, in fact... I can very vividly imagine that, in fact. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then... The response kind of comes, well, you know, only 20% of people are doing that. Uh, And so, in fact, it's just there's not a lot of agreement on that. Uh, But it it makes, I don't know, just has made the conversation about what effective altruism is and what its pros and cons are, I think, like very confusing to watch because it's just so wide ranging in in many different respects. Yeah. Um, Okay. I mean, I suppose that's not like this doesn't sound like the the worst downside. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm like, (laughs) all right, well, so it's a little confusing, but I don't know. But, okay, so maybe more starkly, imagine that you thought, uh, say, biosecurity was like the thing that we should focus on because it's just far and away the most important. Mm -hmm. Um, That probably requires, you know, attracting very particular kinds of people in a very specialized labor uh, in very particular countries. And then you're you're potentially just going to be frustrated when there's other people out there who care about other problems, who are out there kind of promoting related ideas and bringing people into this, who from your point of view can't contribute to the problems that are are most important. Mm. and likewise, they're going to find your attempts to uh, discourage them from promoting uh, these ideas or from like reaching other people who you know can't help with your project to just be like frustrating. Uh, I guess like maybe ultimately the group that like promotes things most widely just ends up dominating because they can just go out and do that. Or, or perhaps they get shut down by the other group. They get like told off and then, I don't know, it seems, uh, it seems very difficult. Uh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> so we're supposed to imagine in a scenario that like the people who want to promote bio-risk feel that it's actively harmful for the people who want to promote this other cause to like bring in people, new people into EA to work on that other cause. I mean, yeah. that just doesn't seem actively harmful to the bio-risk people. It's not like, unless they were creating more bio-risks by doing so or something, but like obviously- No, but they're, they're um, like distracting maybe from the thing that's more important and just, you don't want to then just invite like a thousand people who are not interested in what you think is most, like imagine you were having a biosecurity conference. Would you just invite along a thousand people focused on a completely different thing? Yeah, okay. you wouldn't, right? So, so I did, this is yeah. like, it's distracting and these people are like not contributing to what you think matters. I guess I agree. So I think for things like conferences, hmm. then I'm going to be more sympathetic to the idea that there should be separate conferences for separate causes. Yeah. Because like there really is just a sense of like you can't have a conference that's just like tons and tons of yeah. stuff or, or, or everything at the limit. Um, and so that makes sense. But for a movement, I guess I just think or like where that just kind of means like who wears the like the label and who you know kind of loose things about who lots of people have read and and websites that people go to and and like social circles i guess it just seems fine especially if you think that like not that many people can contribute to biosecurity anyway um which like i don't know if that's true but like if it is true then it's not like oh no all these people are coming into the movement and not doing anything on biosecurity like they weren't going to anyway so like 
it's great that they're working on this other thing that we also think is good. Yeah, I mean, it's, so a lot of this is going to hinge on whether you think there's like multiple different, like the multiple different projects are similarly effective or like you're, you're very happy to see people work on multiple ones or whether if you think there's just like one that stands head and shoulders or like one like subset of it all that's way better than the rest and then the other, those other projects just like don't have intrinsic value or like don't, don't aren't adding very much in your mind then you're much more likely to think well this just like this best thing maybe should break away and just like promote its own yeah I guess, promote itself in a more pure form but I'm saying I don't, don't even know, think don't that that's true like if because if, you potentially think there's like well people like might come in because they're interested in effective action as a whole and then like come into or like it grows the pie for everyone right well so well I'm not sure what you mean by the second thing but like definitely the first thing which is what of course Peter said that like long termists and like sort of more esoteric causes or less less mainstream causes do get talent from people coming in focused on global poverty or focused on animals at first but I guess I'm just trying to say I'm not sure I see the harm from the people who are involved in biosecurity's perspective of having all these other people in EA even if there were no benefit Hmm. um, is it that they would be less interested in being part of EA because these other people are part of EA and they are not doing the thing they think are most important I mean that just seems like it's not obvious to me. So, so here's, here's one more thing. So imagine, uh, you can imagine that there's plenty of people out there who might be interested in long-termism specifically. So interested in like, yeah. having an effect on the very long term, but they don't like other aspects of effective altruism. Uh, so there's like, to, to be in, if, if these two things are connected uh, mm. very tightly, yeah. uh, then they may be less likely to get involved or less likely to buy into it because this kind of requires like more commitments. Perhaps you like, uh, you're, you're interested in long-termism, but you don't like effective altruism as a social scene. It's like you just don't seem to, you just don't gel with the people that well. And it's kind of the more baggage or the more like things that you're bringing along, the more ideas that kind of people might be expected to buy into, uh, the more kind of exclusive or restrictive it becomes. And maybe you just, you only really want to get people to buy into like the one thing that's necessary to work on or the small set of things that are necessary to work on, like the thing that you think is most important. So why then bring along all of this other stuff uh, and, and, and try to convince people of that as well if it doesn't really matter? Yeah. Although, so there's something sort of initially surprising, I just want to flag, about the idea that it could be like more of a restrictive movement in the sense of turning more people off by having a greater variety of people in it. Do you know what I mean? Like you're saying like, well, if you have more people in the movement, then there's like more things that could turn somebody off. And that's like, in some sense, that's surprising just because, I mean, I see what you're saying, but there's also more things to like get people interested or like... You, you, you would also ex- sort of naively expect it to be interesting to a greater variety of people. Potentially. Or I mean, feel more welcome, welcoming to a greater variety. But for example, uh, you know, you, you more classically might have a soccer club, not a kind of soccer and cooking club where people have to be both into soccer and into cooking in order to get involved. That would be like a little bit strange because now you're like adding, well, even if like potentially you could be interested in only one, uh, mm. uh, the fact that you like are really interested in one out of these two things and many people are interested in both like might cause you to like be less likely to get involved. Even if like, in a sense, there's like now there's something for a wider range of people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure whether I whether I'm super convinced by by that argument, but I, I, maybe another concern is that it's like culture is a little bit hard to create. It's, it's quite hard to shift. Uh, mm. It's hard to define. Um, but you might imagine that some cause areas, like biosecurity, for example, might want to have like a very cautious culture because it's like there's a lot of potential yeah. like ways of uh, making things worse accidentally. Whereas other like problem areas might want to have a like you know move fast, break things kind of attitude or. Mm. Uh, be, be more reckless because there's less downside risk so you just want to experiment and then uh, like by integrating these two groups it's very hard to like develop the culture that's appropriate for that particular problem area mm-hmm. now of course we can solve this by having you know different social groups that like only mix somewhat so they might like they might say intellectually you know i'm into effective altruism but then on a day-to-day basis they mostly just spend time with other people who are focused on the problem that they also think is the is the best thing for them to work on yeah but then we've kind of gone halfway towards you know, dividing it into different groups anyway. Mm-hmm. We're just saying kind of, well, well, everyone like subscribes to this broader ideal of doing the most good using kind of an effective altruist mindset. 
but uh, for practical purposes, we we then like break up into different organizations or, or social scenes or, yeah. or cities around different. Yeah, I guess I feel like we're already sort of like part of the way toward the like thinking in terms of that where it's like look what what do we really care about is like um how effectively broken up it is or like that's the important question uh we're already like partly there yeah. right now right yeah. so we're not like Completely. fully integrated of course and yeah. we're not fully broken up and i guess it's like where should we be on that spectrum maybe closer to the like broken up side but yeah i don't think that much far that much more on that Much side more. of the spectrum. I do think that, like, the conference thing, maybe. Like, these, some of these things where, like, oh, there's actually just, like, it's just kind of hard logistically to have all of these um, groups under one roof. I could see, like, there being EA Globals that are more focused on different cause areas, but, uh, but where they're all, like, they're all still EA. Yeah. I mean, I guess think about it with 80,000 Hours as an organization. Uh, we could try to have, you know, grow 80,000 hours to be much bigger and then have like much broader coverage of many different problem areas. But then I think you'd end up with like lots of clashes between kind of different culture of people who are focused on, on different problems. So there'd be like a lot of tension with like, how do we market it? How do we explain what 80,000 hours is? If we're both trying to appeal to, you know, someone who's working on nuclear security in DC and someone who works, wants to work on like poverty or urban design in India, it's just, this, it's, this is, these are like not natural categories maybe that should be like all served by the same website and the same advice and the same people. Uh, maybe they should be like split up into different organizations. They just cater to, to those different yeah. uh, different kind of customer groups. I feel like I have a possible underappreciation. Let me put it this way. It doesn't feel like there should be that big of differences in how we should market these ideas to me. Or like that there will be such big cultural differences between people focused on these different areas that like we could like easily turn off some and uh, while like appealing to others. But I, th- I think I might just like not have a great picture of this. And like you you've like... Uh, worked in this a lot longer than me so maybe you have a better idea of like what kinds of things actually appeal to what groups yeah well i suppose it sounds like i'm i'm arguing that i that i do think that it should uh, break up much more but i'm, I'm just oh yeah sorry <laughs> this, we, we, we've, we've assumed these positions um <laughs> yeah but for the sake of argument i mean i think uh, across countries um huh. there would be i think you'd want to make big differences uh, yeah. if you wanted to kind of explain effective altruism to people who had lived uh, who were born in india like had grown up in india there's going to be a whole different cultural context there and you want to like potentially you know, have a nip and a tuck of the of the ideas to make them make sense to people. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, yeah, I suppose you know, transporting uh, effective altruism from the UK to the Netherlands is like doesn't necessarily involve many changes at all. But yeah. uh, you know, the, the further the, the cultural gap, uh, the more you want to change it a little bit. And you think there could be something analogous with cause areas? Yeah, I mean, you think like animal activism and like attracts particular kinds of people in general. Uh, it's like you know, policy world attracts particular kinds of people. Probably people who like wouldn't ordinarily form organizations together because they like they just have a different personal style. Um, yeah. And then, of course, they, they don't. In fact, like even if, even if they will say, you know, they're supportive of effective altruism and they're like interested in reading about this like broader topic, doesn't mean they have to like work together and hang out together. And I guess yeah. it also seems like it's at least possible that like, although it is true that different types of people will tend to have, have, have tended to gravitate toward these different causes, it would be like better if there was a little bit more of the like culture of people who are interested in animal stuff, like sort of injected into the culture of people who tend to be more interested in like security things because like there are various great aspects of all of these Mm. subcultures and maybe mixing i mean it just seems like usually it's usually just good and like the best bits sort of rise to the surface and create this thing that is better than all of the things that went into it yeah i mean there is also this problem that you bring in people who are very different and they're just more likely to have conflict, uh, more likely to fight yeah. with another and like uh, maybe their projects won't work for that reason. I think in, in, in practice, there's just been remarkably little conflict given the diversity of people who are attracted. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah. That, that, that is, really, that is kind of, are we just, have we just gotten lucky or is this actually? 
I guess if I was being flattering, I might say people involved, people who have been attracted to effective altruism are like very interested in reflecting over things at great length and maybe not super impulsive. Uh, and so they may be less inclined to just get into fights with people uh, because yeah. they're more likely to just intellectualize things. Mm. Um, so maybe that is kind of a protective factor that has helped. Maybe, I mean, there's also been a lot of active efforts to make sure that it, it seems, for example, that it's much easier for people to get into interpersonal conflict when they don't meet with one another. But then if they just actually hang out um, yeah. and, you know, get, get dinner, then uh, suddenly they, they find that they get along a whole lot better than they did before. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if, you know, you said that there hasn't been as much conflict over like funding and other sorts of resources as one might have expected. Maybe those conflicts would actually get bigger if like it wasn't as socially integrated. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, they'd still, there'd still be a lot of funding sources that would be, end up, you know... Um, being in common. Be, yeah, being in common. Yeah. Um, I mean, another uh, cynical explanation I've heard is that, uh, in general, you know, effective altruism has been becoming larger. There's kind of more funding available you know, each year than the last year, typically, mm -hmm. and more people getting involved. Uh, and so this means there isn't a need to, like, fight as much as kind of everyone's budgets can, can grow. But then uh, what if, like, there was suddenly, uh, you know a major funder dropped out and there was a lot less uh, a lot less resources to go around, then maybe maybe people would start getting a bit more uh, more frustrated with one another. Yeah, that seems plausible. That doesn't seem that <laughs> cynical to me. That just seems like... So realistic. I mean, substance, yeah, I mean, scarcity breeds conflict. Like, right. ah. <laughs> <laughs> We're making amazing sociological progress here. <laughs> I guess, like, another option that I've heard people talk about is not so much splitting up by cause area, but splitting up by, like, different philosophical, diff you know, mm. sort of views. So... Which I think I might be more sympathetic to because like, so if one of the things that attracted me to effective altruism was the idea of cause neutrality, but like not the idea of, you know, ethics neutrality or something yeah. like that's not a thing. So uh, philosophical theses, I feel like are more, they strike me as more appropriate reasons to have like separate groups. Now, I'm not, I'm not totally sure about that, but like, so like having a long-termist focused uh, sort of group and a not long-termist focus group makes more sense to me than ha splitting it up by cause where like any cause in principle would be like could be part of the long-termist group it's just that of course some causes have more of a case for like making a difference in the long term than others uh, i guess i kind of conceive of breaking off long-termism as to some extent breaking people up by cause area because mm. there is like a, there's a common group of causes that tend to go along with that yeah um that also then happened to correlate with people's philosophical views as well yeah, yeah that feels really different to me um just because so one of the things that seems really really valuable about keeping like people with different focuses together is that they can argue about like no what really is the best means to our shared goal we have this shared goal and we want to figure out like what like thing, do, things that we can do in the world are actually going to get us there. And that seems like something that can really benefit from bringing people together who have different opinions. But it's like less obvious, at least, that it's better to bring people together who have different goals. So if one goal is like, I want to uh, maximize the good uh, over like all of all of uh, the universe's history. Uh, so, and the other goal is like, I want to maximize the good in the next like, uh, you know, 400 years or something like that. Mm. Those are different goals. And so you're not going to have quite the same character of conversation. Yeah. I suppose it is sometimes remarkable how much people who have pretty different philosophical views end up agreeing on like what concretely should be done. Yeah. Uh, which is a way that you can end up uh, with, yeah, people who like I have very different view, I suppose, and like what most people involved in effective altruism would have who nonetheless think, oh, you know, absolutely. I want to like fund the same projects. Um, yeah. But then I suppose that, that that's always like liable to potentially break down uh, that they could then end up like really disagreeing for like a reason that no one else would, would accept, say. Yeah, I guess I think like it seems like more of an issue with long termism versus not long termism than it does with like utilitarianism, 
like straight utilitarianism versus like uh, maybe a mixed view, like the one that Singer was talking about, where it's like, oh, you're sort of like a utilitarian part of the time, but you also have some, some rules that you don't break. It feels like those like people converge more often on what you should do because we're like very like seldom in the kinds of situations that breaks the view that break the views apart. Whereas yeah. it doesn't seem like that's true with long termism versus not long termism. Yeah, that's probably right. Okay, so, so you're saying if you had a group that broke apart, which is like we're just going to do straight utilitarianism, none of this like effective altruism, watered down stuff, uh, then mm-hmm. uh, you think they might end up just like reinventing the same projects, basically, or like doing the same work, or, like. It'd be a variety of views, I guess. But yeah. you're saying, like, if long-termists broke away, then they would probably be doing something that was quite distinctive from what, like, other people involved in effective altruism are currently doing, and consistently so. Yeah, I think that seems right to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that does seem probably, like, the most natural split. Yeah, so another very related question is, you know, even if we accepted that we want to have a really broad movement that can have, like, tons of people in it, like Peter Singer was saying, you know, why does that mean that global poverty should be the face of the movement? So I feel like I hear this, these kind of things sort of tied together a lot, but like, it seems like there's some implicit argument going on there. So one thing might be, well, maybe global poverty responds more to funding increases and like having a bigger movement is just always going to be better. Well, maybe not always, but like almost always better for like having more funding. Or maybe it's that just a lot more people can contribute. I think that those are the two main things. Does that sound right to you? Um, I guess I would have thought that the main thing was that it's like it's a much shorter step from where most people are currently philosophically oh, yeah. to... It's like more intuitive. It's more intuitive. Yeah, so many people already do think that maybe, you know, like a large fraction of people trying to do good already do think that one of the best things to do would be to help people in extreme poverty uh, yeah. in the developing world. And even among those who don't, say, who are focused on you know poverty in their local area or in their country... It's not a huge step philosophically to say, well, there's people in more, even more dire poverty, uh, you know, a few hundred miles away. So maybe, and actually, we should prioritize prioritize them. It doesn't involve these like then further steps to say, oh, and like animal consciousness is really important, uh, or you know, we should think about like people in thousands of years time. These, yeah. these all like involve like multiple. Yeah, you don't think so? Well, no, sorry. I think you're. I think this is like ninety percent true. I just. Yeah. Uh, it also seems like there are pretty intuitive elements to other cause areas like especially x risk i mean like end of the world is bad like it's hard to get more intuitive than that in some sense yeah and you can tie it into climate change as well yeah Uh, it's like many many people are people seem to have sympathy for the idea that it would be bad if like extreme climate change ended human civilization yeah uh many people are on board with that so yeah (laughs) but (laughs) it's true okay so but maybe overall compared to like all the other cause areas with maybe the exception of x risk Global poverty is more intuitive. I would buy that. But so I thought that maybe it was the idea that like more people can contribute. And I feel like at Uh, least sometimes people think that more people can contribute to global poverty. Yeah. And yeah. So I guess that does seem true now. But I was wondering, like, should we expect that to be true for a long time? Because we might think that there just isn't a lot of infrastructure uh, around like explicitly long termist causes. And so that's why it's like really hard, basically, to like do stuff in the in the long-termist world because uh there just aren't like a bunch of jobs there's not like set procedures we just don't know how to do it and so you have to do all this like figuring out how and field building Mm -hmm. and that's really hard and maybe not that many people can do it but like maybe in 50 years it won't be the case and there could be like tons of ways of contributing to long-termist causes Mm -hmm. and like maybe if x risk is still like the main thing that people focus on in the long-termist domain then like that would be really i think that could be really intuitive in which case it could just be like here's an intuitive and like very accessible sort of moral movement and with with long-termist x-risk reduction as the face yeah um i have to admit i haven't thought about that that one that much i I guess you're imagining that maybe if we were in 1950 um 
it would be hard for people to figure out how to contribute to ending global poverty because like not that much research has been done. There yeah. wasn't the infrastructure for, for doing it. You'd have so to be this like really innovative, innovative scientist yeah. or whatever. I'm going to go to yeah, one of these countries and like figure out how to like cure these diseases that are mm-hmm. currently like seem very intractable uh, to cure. Uh, and so maybe we're at that, that kind of stage with long-termism, but it will yeah. gradually become like much more apparent what things should obviously be funded and uh, like what it would be like organized career tracks that people can just get on. Yeah, it's interesting. I suppose uh, Will McCaskill, who I think we've got an interview with that will come out come out after this one. Uh, I think his vision now is to have uh, long-termism be a very broad movement that can hopefully get like a very large fraction of the population on board. Huh. I'm so glad uh, to hear that. I didn't know that that was something he was thinking about. Yeah, and I think that's maybe partly because he uh, is less focused on these uh, weird existential risks and, and more just thinks that you want to shape the future as a whole through mm. like... You know, improving people's values, building better governmental institutions, having more coordination between countries is much more or like having just society be like wiser as a whole, uh, where it seems much more obvious that you just need like a lot of people chipping away at these problems in like many different small ways. Yeah. I mean, even if you stayed focused on X risk, if you thought that it was like X risks that were going to continue to come up over the next like thousand years or mm. there was, you know, keep trying to keep those those uh, risks down um, mm. over the long term, then like it could still play into that kind of broad movement. Um, I think, I guess the the picture where you aren't in favor of that is where you think there are these X risks that are here like really, really soon. And we just need people to work on those as much as possible and like not worry too much about like what we're going to do in 50 or 100 years because like we really just need to make it through this. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I suppose another thing is at the moment, people studying kind of uh, yeah, what government policies do we want to reduce existential risks don't really have that long a menu of policies that they feel very uh, confident about. But that might well be different in 10 or 50 or 100 years time. There might just be like lots of like obviously specific things that people should do and that they can run campaigns on and people can run for government like advocating these things just yeah. the way that they do, you know, uh, policies that would reduce domestic or international poverty or reduce climate change for that matter. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm somewhat convinced. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. So another uh, very related thing is that, so Peter said that he thought it sounded good to try to encourage people to be working on things like AI safety or other X risk reduction, but that like he saw that as kind of a modest investment of the EA community. So like that that was consistent with thinking that we should be spending a sort of lower fraction of our resources on those kinds of issues. But yeah, it's not obvious to me that that is a modest investment. It seems like it actually just takes so much to like get people into. Well, so of course I'm focused on like getting people into these roles because like here we are at 80,000 hours, but yeah. also just to like build these fields that don't really exist. Like it would be a modest investment to like do this kind of thing in a field that already was established, but in one that isn't already established, it feels like it actually takes a lot of resources. And so maybe like if you think that's good, then you're going to want like pretty substantial investment from the effective altruism community. Interesting. So, so the idea is that uh, if you're trying to kind of build a field of intellectual inquiry from scratch, then, you know, you probably need like a hundred million dollars and uh, like maybe hopefully hundreds of people to, to get it off the ground and get it legitimacy. You can't just throw a few people at it because then they just can't accomplish anything. Yeah. Or like um, even getting a few, yeah, getting a few people who are going to be effective is like hard and like takes mm. a lot. So that like if we thought, well, we want EA to be like establishing these fields, that really is going to compete with the idea that like we want to spend a majority of our resources on these other cause areas because like that might just be a majority of our resources. Yeah. I think the the bigger tension uh, that I see here is that kind of what would be a modest investment from a global point of view? Uh, So, you know, putting maybe a couple of hundred people on uh, working on the robustness and reliability of AI that doesn't seem like that extreme given the potential importance of ML for, you know, the future of humanity as a whole, just based on like common sense ideas and people's, you know, 
the range of forecasts that people have about right. the even given a bunch of uncertainty right i mean there's like tens of thousands of people working on you know improving ai and applying it to different problems so why not have a you know 100 200 people working on making it <laughs> uh, you know reducing the, the the downside risks uh that that ends up being like potentially a very large fraction of effective altruism because it's like a relatively small group at the moment um i mean i suppose as effective action becomes bigger, there's more people involved, you'd expect that there would be a greater diversity of, of projects. Uh, yeah. And I think that that, that is happening and, and does seem pretty desirable. I mean, so you're kind of alluding to this idea that it's kind of increasing returns in focusing on a single problem. Uh, mm. so, so like one person kind of can't accomplish a tenth as much as 10 people can. And those 10 people can't accomplish a tenth as much as 100 people can. Because mm. like you want to, there's some like basic work that has to be done before you can even begin to make progress on yeah. something. And so it's kind of, if you want to have one person, well, you may as well maybe have 100 people. Mm. Uh, and then at that point, maybe you hit declining returns and then you should move on to a new uh, a new issue. Yeah. Uh, but this does mean that like initially, at least probably going to have some clumping or some like agglomeration where a whole lot of like people pile into the same problem uh, so that they can actually get something done. So there's kind of a critical mass yeah. Uh, to, yeah, to, to get off the ground. Right. Uh, but then that makes you seem like peculiarly narrow, perhaps, in the, in the focus that you have, because it's kind of like three projects that people have piled into a lot. Uh, and you're like, like, is it obviously that only these three things should be getting attention? Right. But, and, but until you get bigger, you kind of can't potentially do more than three things seriously. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, I guess, like communications and, and PR issues, uh, what did you think of uh, Singer's reaction to the question about uh, immigration? It was interesting. Uh, well, I didn't, I didn't necessarily guess that he was going to say, well, you shouldn't necessarily talk about immigration because of the... Uh, like perverse political effects that that might have. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting too. And kind of like, um, I guess it was surprising because it seems like so often in Singer's career, it's it's like paid off to just be like, just advocate for the thing that you think is morally right and like not worry too much about people's reactions as we were talking about throughout some of the rest of the podcast. So yeah, I thought that was kind of interestingly like conservative or something not conservative in the political sense but just like yeah worrying about these like uh ramifications yeah it is interesting i guess i feel like you have to in your mind maintain kind of two balance sheets here so mm. people ask me like what policy do you favor and i kind of always try to say well i personally prefer like policy x but like given the political reality of like how other people respond then i in fact don't think that we should advocate for it but i guess sometimes people get a little bit conf confused between these two and they'll say that they're against the the idea just because like other people are against it and then you like never actually get to find out what their real view is yeah so i guess like here like singer probably is in favor of more immigration like you know if you were a dictator and there was like no one else who's like concerns and reactions you'd have to have to uh, care about. Uh, but then like, yeah, given the reality, thinks that it's not a good, good, uh, good thing to promote. So it's perhaps just the, the political backlash on this issue is um, particularly salient at the moment. So that's yeah. why that seems like kind of the, 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 the first issue to consider or the first, uh, the biggest downside to consider. I guess I wonder what, wonder whether there's other policy issues that uh, you could make similar arguments about. I mean, maybe people don't like, or I, in some countries, people hate the idea of like, you know, aid money going overseas. Uh, mm, that, that's, yeah. that's kind of offensive to them. Um, I yeah. guess you were saying earlier that you thought there might be backlash about if, if you could actually get to a point where people were considering, you know, outlawing animal agriculture. So you had like massive progress on kind yeah. of factory farming, then you could imagine a huge backlash from people who think that that's uh, massively overbearing and unreasonable. I mean, God, can you imagine? Like, can you imagine if there was like a, you know, it became like a semi-mainstream sort of left policy issue to be like, let's outlaw factory farming. Let's, be, let's say before clean meat is on the market. There'd be an absolutely enormous backlash. And like, I could easily see that leading to like a sort of Trump phenomenon insofar as, you know, uh, Singer is right that like the sort of immigration backlash was a big part of Trump getting elected. Um, something like that seems like it could easily happen with animal agriculture, but that hasn't been a reason for him not to advocate for that. I mean, you could think that it's just that like, well, at this point, 
there isn't going to be a backlash because it's just not mainstream. And like maybe, you know, if it were to become more mainstream, then we should back up, which is kind of interesting. (laughs) Yeah, that is interesting. So I suppose it's the argument that, well, I suppose either you could find something where there won't be a backlash, but it seems like with almost everything, there kind of is some backlash. At least with Uh, everything that we're doing like really wrong at the time, right? Because like the reason we're doing it really wrong is that like lots of people don't, yeah, think that it's... So maybe the argument has to be that you have to go like slow enough to bring enough people on board by the time you're actually going to be able to like implement policy in, in, right. in, in a very broad yeah. scale. So it's a question of timing. But well, it does seem like in as much as you think it's like a massive injustice that people can't cross borders, mm-hmm. uh, then maybe you do have to start pushing on this now, like making that argument. I suppose maybe you don't want to implement policy or maybe you want to like stay out of like actually suggesting, well, we're going to increase uh, you know, campaigning to actually increase the amount of immigration because that might freak people out more than just like the philosophical argument. Mm. But at some point, you have to like start persuading people you'll never get kind of over the over the backlash stage. Right. It would seem bad if like every time there was going to potentially be a really bad backlash, we like backed off on every moral issue. Yeah. Um, There's a backlash to women's suffrage, backlash to like anti-racism, yeah. a backlash to trying to abolish slavery. <laughs> but yeah, it's, like a lot of these things are really important. Like sometimes you just have to pay the have to pay the price. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could think that, like, if you were just, like, politically omniscient and you just knew when, like, the especially backlashy moments were, then, like, yeah, maybe, like, pause for a year and then, like, come back to it. Um, But it just seems really hard to tell beforehand. Yeah, I guess to Steelman Singer's view, perhaps you would think immigration currently is pretty low. It's just not going to be possible to increase it that much. So, like, even though it would be, like, very nice to increase it a lot. You know, in fact, the gains that we can realistically get anytime soon are really small. And yet, like, the backlash is so out of proportion to, like, any of the actual numbers that you bring in. Yeah. So you could, like, you know, bring in a thousand refugees from somewhere and this creates, like, this, like, allows, you know, right-wing media or anti-immigration media to, to make a huge fuss and persuade lots of people to vote differently, even though you've, like, helped only a very tiny number of people. So how um, does this not generalize, though, to, like, every sort of controversial moral thing? Is it that in some cases, even though there would be a huge backlash, there would also be a huge upside to be, being able to change some policy? So like the the anal- like taking the animal issue as like an analogy here. What's the analog of open borders? It's like abolishing all animal agriculture yeah. or something. But like probably you'll only, you know, when you campaign on this in this like imagined world where it's approximately as mainstream as immigration reform, you're campaigning to like basically increase welfare standards a little bit or increase some tax here or blah, 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 blah. And like probably you're not going to get huge welfare gains if that goes through, but you might incite a really big backlash. And yeah. still, I think you should probably press on, I guess, is my instinct. Yeah, well, it is interesting that, you know, even many people who you guess based on their, like, state of philosophical views would think that we should abolish animal agriculture, like, usually don't campaign on that line. Uh, they usually do take a different angle, like, I guess, like, welfare, you know, welfare for, for farm yeah. animals or something like that. I guess, well, so, yeah, what, what about global poverty? I suppose it seems like, yeah, this definitely is sometimes a line used by political parties that we're not, we're going to stop sending money overseas, stop yeah. wasting money overseas. But it doesn't seem to be quite as potent as some of these other issues. Uh, there's like some people who are like drawn in by that message, but I think fewer people are concerned about aid spending than about immigration. Yeah, for which is actually reason. really interesting because it does feel like somewhat analogous. It's like helping people who are not already. So I, I'm thinking of this from this the U.S. centric perspective. Mm-hmm. Helping people who are not already U.S. citizens, so are not in the present U.S. citizens, uh, with like resources that would otherwise go to u.s citizens of course in the immigration case like a lot of people argue that actually like more immigration grows the pie and you'd have more resources for u.s citizens as well but like putting that aside people imagine that it's like well i'm either going to get this like job or it's going to go to an immigrant and so it seems like really similar it's actually really surprising that there's such a different reaction why do you think that is yeah i suppose it feels like um you know having open borders would change people's lives a lot more than sending even five or 10% of their income overseas, potentially. 
I mean, like obviously foreign aid in reality is tiny. So maybe right. that like helps to explain why in reality people don't. It's like what I think in the US like 0.3% of GDP. So I mean, it's like in fact say- a negligible sum, although they maybe like think they, they, they think it's way more. Yeah. Uh, like most, most people when surveyed think it's much more. Uh, but even so, yeah, it just feels like, yeah, losing some percentage of your income feels like less fundamental than maybe, I guess they would say like then having the culture of the place that you live change massively uh, in a way yeah. that, that, that you're opposed to. Yeah. Um, I guess so. I guess it maybe like brings out more of like a racist thing as well. Uh, yeah, that's probably like, the elephant in this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess there's also the issue that like there's such thing as illegal immigration, but there's no such thing as like the government mm, like Ill- illicitly taking your money and sending it overseas. Yeah. I suppose that, I mean, there, there is a benefit to doing things that are not politically controversial because you can just make more progress. You don't have groups who are actively organized against you. It's, it's disturbing. The idea that like maybe some issues could like get to a point where then it would be a bad okay. idea to work further on them. I mean, I think... In general, societies, like, things have been getting better. And there's been, like, lots of controversial campaigns that people have run mm. that were at least controversial at the time. And there was a backlash. And nonetheless, I think it was good that they did it. And overall, like, in the long term, things are made better. So I think in as much as promoting immigration is a bad idea because of the backlash effect, I think it kind of must be an exception to the more general rule that in general it's good to push for things that are good. Because uh, if they're like, right, then most of the time, eventually you win and there's a backlash temporarily, but then you, you get the benefit for forever after once you've like really convinced people. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I hope that that's right. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose if in as much as promoting uh, good things is actually bad because of the backlash, maybe we should promote bad things because it will, will, be, will, be, will be Oh my God, we would get such a big backlash <laughs> if we just promote obviously bad things. Well, uh, I, Mobilize okay. the people. Well, there is okay, there is a school of thought that, that thinks this, that is like it's bad to make the world better in like small ways because then you prevent the revolution that will make things much better. Oh yeah. So this is like the, the worse the better philosophy, where uh, in fact we should like make things worse now so that there'll be like a massive change. And and suppose you do see, uh, uh, for example, uh, after Trump was elected, trade and immigration became like more popular than they'd ever been in, in surveys in in the US because it kind of radicalized people against the views that he was expressing. Mm. So like maybe people who who, who were opposed to Trump but maybe had more ambivalent views about immigration and trade. Yeah. Um, but before Trump, now, like, they, they, you know, they, they side against everything that he's against. So uh, I see, a, but there, see, there's a backlash to, like, things that you might mm-hmm. think are bad. But if Trump only got elected because of the backlash, then really it's the, <laughs> the better the better because if we did these, like, good things and there was a backlash against that, which then mm. there was a backlash against the backlash, which now is making, promoting the good things again. It's true. So, so we should promote immigration to get Trump elected so that then, finally, we can have finally. our borders. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, uh, let's move on. So another thing I thought was interesting and a little bit surprising was that Peter Singer thought that consequentialism with side constraints or like rules that you're not allowed to break was the most plausible uh, moral view besides consequentialism. Like, you know, consequentialism has all of these distinctive features and one of them is that there's no absolute rules. But another is that like it says that the only thing that is right is the thing that is best or that promotes, you know, makes for the best consequences. And... I at least like intuitively find that second thing the more sort of difficult aspect of consequentialism. So I, it's like he went for giving up on no absolute rules over giving up this other feature that says that like you always have to do the thing that's best. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I think I probably share Singer's intuition there. That, that oh, I find yeah? it like, yeah, I don't find the demandingness nearly as troubling as the idea that you can just like trample over people's autonomy or mm. freedom or rights. Yeah. That seems like much more disturbing uh, consequence to me. Maybe it's just that, you know, of course we don't want to think that morality is extremely demanding and like could impose on our lives to, to, to that extent. But that feels like that's explained by our like kind of natural selfishness or, you know, our, our prudential interests uh, mm-hmm. that we like 
you know, we're not perfectly moral beings, right? So it's like, there's things that we want to do. Yeah. Uh, utilitarianism says you know, we can't do because you have like these other duties. But then it just feels like much more of a moral issue. It's like, so you're just going to like, you could just, you know, uh, imprison an innocent person, uh, even though they've done nothing wrong, because that would like have good consequences in some diffuse way that that feels like morally offensive, right? Yeah, I see what you're saying. I think it's, it's interesting that maybe effective altruism as a school of thought has kind of adopted like parts of both of this. So both, mm-hmm. uh, I think like, moral side constraints is like built into effective altruism philosophically and like as a, as a community saying that's like yeah you can't like violate other people's rights like even if the consequences would be very good and also that while we like want people to focus more on doing the most good uh, we, we don't want them to like focus on to the exclusion of everything else um yeah. so it's like they're, they're both like nice compromises that make it like uh better politically and like much less risky uh, yeah and uh, like more, much more capable of fitting into people's lives in an ordinary way and i think you don't have to make like huge compromises there for it to to be like a much more practical way of living in the world that seems right it seems like the motivation though for saying that like don't violate people's rights in effective altruism is more from coming from moral uncertainty than like political uh palatability i don't know I mean, it's like, in a sense, over determined, there's like a lot of reasons why it's good. One yeah. is that like, uh, if you tell people that it's okay to like violate people's rights, if it will have good consequences, then they're just going to constantly mess up and like right. violate people's rights. And okay, yeah, there's a third bad. reason. So there's that. And there's moral uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, then there's like, well, if you're the kind of group that goes around violating people's rights, you're going to get like shut down very quickly, kind of yeah. regardless. Mm-hmm. And then you, I guess like there's also just like disgust, I think that people have, like even setting aside like fundamental, like we're thinking that it's wrong. It's like people also just think it's like kind of appalling on some like gut level, even setting aside I think like moral argument. Do you know what I mean? It's um, like I wouldn't want to be involved in it with a group that like mm. violated people's rights like that. Like even if I thought on like some like purely philosophical level that it was like acceptable. Um, okay, and you weren't like so you weren't like politically opposed. It's not like so. This is supposed to be a different point than the like political palatability thing. It's like uh, people wouldn't say that it's wrong and they wouldn't fight against it, but they would just not get involved because it would be too like personally hard for them. Are yeah, they- personally hard, just revolting. I don't know. <laughs> like, like, mm. I suppose. So I guess the the political thing I was suggesting was that it's like the group just like won't be able, it won't be able to continue because it will get like shut down by other groups. Because it's like we have like as a society we we have yeah. like tried to outlaw any group that's willing to like do things like this, and I think rightly so. But then, uh, yeah, I think also it's just like you wouldn't be able to build a group because like most people wouldn't have, yeah, they wouldn't have the stomach for it. Yeah. Uh, okay. And I think that's like also to the good, right? So there's like reasons why we have these intuitions that mm-hmm. like violating rights and autonomy is no good it's like it because it like would okay. if, if people like i think didn't have that then i think society would function much like much less well definitely uh yeah. or well sorry i should say i agree probably um, <laughs> <laughs> okay uh and then the like reason that eas are usually wanting to say things like well you know your whole life doesn't have to be about doing good you don't have to think about doing good in every possible decision is more just we want people to be part of this movement we think it's like good overall when people are able to do something for you know their own happiness because then they're more likely to get involved or something like that yeah i mean again i think there's like multiple different reasons and people kind of like yeah, couple together they're like their own justification i suppose one is that it's like psychologically a lot easier to say well i'm going to put in like x i'm going to put in you know 10 percent of my money or like 30 percent of my time into doing good and then like that's going to be the, the, the limit and i'm not going to constantly worry about like whether i should do 31 percent and mm-hmm. like 11 percent uh, things like that. Yeah. And there's also just people who think that, in fact, morality isn't that demanding. Like, maybe probably most people think that. Uh, so, in fact, they don't feel like it's obligatory to, like, spend all of their spare time uh, doing doing good. Then there's also, you know, even if you thought that it was obligatory, then it's going to be uh, a lot easier to, to get a lot more people involved if like, if your ask is much more reasonable. Uh, I feel like that was just that's the first point again. 
Like uh, it's easier on. to do it. Okay. So that's why it's oh, easier but, but, to get people involved. But then there's like, okay, yeah. So they're like two different angles, two different benefits, I think. So one is like people will be able to stick around for longer because they're okay. not going to burn out. They're not going to yeah. like uh, harm themselves. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's also what people will, if people look at a group of people and notice that they're all like burning out and like miserable, then they're not going to get involved. Yeah. Um, okay. So just like make a reasonable ask of people and then like many people can follow through on this and many people can participate. Uh, whereas if you ask for perfection, then almost no one will, or like few people will get involved in the first place and then they won't be able to stay involved either. Cause like no one, no one is capable of doing that. Yeah. I guess uh, some people might also think that, uh, you know, overworking yourself or trying too hard actually leads to you to, to accomplish less potentially. So I guess especially in as much as you think what, what really matters is what people accomplish over, you know, many decades, mm-hmm. uh, then it's like important to encourage them to do something that's sustainable in the long term. Um, so I think it's like a, yeah, an, an extra reason. Yeah. Yeah, are there any others that, 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 that we've missed? It's interesting that like both of these have like so many different justifications that I feel yeah. they're on like pretty robust grounds. Although there's always a question of like, you know, exactly how much. Yes, I think it's uh, especially, well, there's a question for that for the demandingness one. There isn't really a question for that for the, that's, the yeah, other that's one true. because like yeah. nature is to, to, <laughs> to be pretty precise. Yeah, although I suppose, I mean, you know, most people, I guess, accept that, uh, you know, under like really unusual circumstances, you can violate people's rights. Yeah. Um, I guess like, yeah, I guess Peter brought up the example of like torturing an innocent person to prevent, you know, a nuclear weapon going off in a city. Yeah. I, I guess I haven't actually seen a survey on this, but I expect that most people would accept that even though that's like, you know, appalling and they would struggle to do it and maybe wouldn't in fact do it, that they can understand the, the force of the moral argument there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I suppose, I guess people have this, this kind of a morality that comes along with like wartime circumstances or something like that, where it's like the, the, the stakes are so extreme that like... Anyway, it's like most people, I guess, accept that like some rights can be like uh, broken. Uh, sometimes maybe the question is just like, where, do, where, do, where is the line drawn? Yeah, I guess also like another way in which there's a matters degree. So the thing I said before is false is that um, <laughs> I think people reasonably feel that some rights are more invaluable than others. Yeah. So like maybe you have a, a like right to to know stuff about like a right for people not to hide certain kinds of information from you or something. But like that's much less Important than your right, right to life. Yeah. I mean, like an everyday uh, kind of right violation that we accept just on practical grounds is that we incarcerate people before they've had their trial and like sometimes yeah. don't allow them out on bail, um, yeah. uh, which probably we do too much. Uh, I guess, yeah, I've like recently seen evidence. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you let people out without any bail, then they show up almost at the same rates as uh, when they do have bail. But like sometimes you suspect that someone's dangerous to the community, but you haven't yet proven that you know, beyond reasonable doubt, haven't yet had a trial, but you hold them for months before trial. And I guess... Probably, you know, sometimes that that does just have to be the way that things are. Mm. You know, actually, uh, is it even clear that most people think that it's not a rights violation to keep people in prison after they've been convicted? So, like, you might think, because there's two different models of this. Which one is like, yeah, you're violating their rights, but, like, you need to for X, Y, and Z reasons. Like, one is to protect the public, blah, 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 maybe re- rehabilitation, maybe, maybe punishment, um, deterrence, so on and so forth. And that's just like outweighing the fact that it's a rights violation. The other view is that they actually lose their right for, to freedom. Mm. And it's like actually not clear to me that most people think the second thing. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I actually haven't thought about that question. Um, I suppose depending on your philosophy of like where rights come from, perhaps. So, yeah. yeah, or like what, yeah, whether these are human rights or whether they are mm. civil rights, that which maybe can be like waived if they're like what, legally, you know, <laughs> under the yeah. right like sort of legal circumstances. <laughs> right, yeah. So I guess like one reason uh, that I was surprised that Peter thought that uh, the most plausible moral view after consequentialism was consequentialism plus moral prohibitions, uh, as opposed to like a less demanding form of consequentialism, is that he said this thing about pet projects. You know, he, he felt like this woman that he was talking about, she 
had this uh, project that he thought was good, but maybe not the thing that was the most effective. And he said, well, here's a good compromise. Like she should still do that, but like devote some resources to what, what does the most good. And like that is um, a good sort of like way of compromising. And that feels like a thing that you say when you're thinking, well, maybe morality doesn't need to be that demanding. Yeah, I guess maybe the way of squaring the circle there is that he thinks in principle it is really demanding, but, uh, you know, for practical reasons, we, we should like ask people for only a reasonable amount of their resources or, or their money. And then he's thinking, well, for this pet project, that can come out of their like personal budget, out of the like resources that we think it's okay for them to spend on the things that they like themselves personally. Mm. Uh, so that, you, you know, you have your like budget for doing things that are like the most effective things and then everything else yeah. <laughs> all of your other pre- like preference satisfaction all the things you want in your life which might include helping other people because you because it's something that you personally care about a lot it seems like in so far as we're trying to make things more doable for people or make things yeah more practical or more attractive to a wider range of people it seems like one good way of doing that would be to say well from your altruism budget you can like sometimes support things that you think are, that are really special to you. And it's like interesting that we don't go that route, that we say, no, you, you, you use that from your personal budget, um, but like in, with your altruism budget, you have to be as effective as possible. Or, you know, sorry, we don't say it that way, but it seems yeah. like that would be one way to go. Yeah, I think that would make sense if you thought that, so there, there might be a project that was like half as good as the very best project from an mm. altruistic point of view, but like you were way more passionate about. And then you do some kind of like middle ground thing where it's like, yeah, you, you do something that's like maybe not the thing that's like the, the thing that you're most passionate about and maybe not the thing that's the most effective, but then like in combination, uh, it's like it's, it's best to just like give all your money to this middle ground thing. Uh-huh. I guess like in, a, in practice, in as much as you think that there's like a relatively small number of things that are way more effective than, than others. And then there's like other things you're really passionate about and most things you're not. And it's better just to like give half of the resources to optimize one thing and half of the resources to optimize another thing. Uh, That's going to turn out to be like much more optimal than doing some middle ground compromise. One way of going for like making this stuff more less demanding would be this thing of like, well, why don't you just work on the thing that you're like most passionate about or is the sort of triangulated like best thing um, from like sort of that perspective plus the perspective of effectiveness. But another would go, look, take your like budget of how much you think you want to spend on helping others and like spend 70% of it on uh, things that are the most effective and 30% of it on things that give you a lot of warm fuzzies. Mm. And uh, and then you have your personal budget is completely untouched. And that would be one way of making this stuff less demanding, but it's not, it doesn't seem like it's like, dis- that's like usually discussed. Usually we discuss demandingness, like making things less demanding by saying like, well, we just shrink the budget for uh, for like altruistic stuff to like allow for more stuff for yourself. Yeah, I guess people are conceptualizing the warm fuzzies as part of the selfish budget because it's like donor-focused altruism or like giver-focused altruism because like the reason you're doing it is because of the the like experience that you have of of doing good. But that maybe that's like something that's more intuitive to people who are really involved in effective altruism than, yeah. than others because like other people are going to conceptualize it as like altruism first. Uh, yeah, right. Or like helping others first. Yeah. So insofar as like a lot yeah. of the reason to sort of like present a less demanding view is that we like sort of want to attract people and like keep people from burning out and blah 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 blah. Then yeah. like this seems like a like a somewhat good way of doing that i see right i so, say so saying it's like it's very motivating to people so like yeah yeah that's interesting so it like keeps them keeps them involved in doing good because they find it like more fulfilling and so that's a that's a good actual reason to do it even like setting aside any selfish benefit okay there's so much more to talk about <laughs> here but um i actually have to go because i have to go to dinner yeah i'm getting actually pretty hungry as well so we should probably wrap up uh, all right well this was really fun 
Just a reminder that if you want to get a text or audio copy of The Life You Can Save, you can do that at thelifeyoucansave.org or via the link in the show notes. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering is by Ben Cordell and transcriptions by Zaki Ulhag. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.